Oh, a wise guy, eh? He sure is. He's Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball. And he's coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way. Because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 16th. It's show number one of the 2024 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you to start the season. We'll have two feature expert interviews, first with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball and the fantasy baseball writer at The Athletic. We'll discuss some of the hitters he'll be featuring in his columns at The Athletic, including Yiner Diaz, Vladimir Guerrero, Zach Geloff, Francisco Lindor, Gunnar Henderson, and Riley Green, and more. Then we'll have our second feature expert interview with Brent Hershey, co-general manager and a member of the scouting team at BaseballHQ.com. Brent and I will talk about the new Baseball HQ website, and then we'll run through some of the prospects being taken in drafts this season, like Wyatt Langford, Pete Crow Armstrong, Ricky Tiedemann, Dylan Cruz, and Kyle Manzardo. We'll also have our weekly fantasy news update with Ray Murphy, looking at American League news including Carlos Santana and Luke Rayleigh and the bullpens in Texas and Oakland, as well as Oakland's starting pitcher Ross Stripling. Then we'll head to the National League, including hitters Nick Gordon and Yasmani Grandal, and pitchers Clayton Kershaw, Christopher Sanchez, and the Atlanta rotation. We'll also have one of our regular commentaries from the analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Houston third baseman Zach DiZenzo. It's another big, no, huge Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Pitchers and catchers report this week. It's time to start talking some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball and fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. Gene, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, Patrick. It's great to be here, man. Let's go. It's great to have you. Uh, I know that over the last few years, Gene, you've been focusing more and more on daily fantasy, but uh, how many full season drafts are you playing in this year, if any at all? Um, well, I'm going to do the NFBC main event. I'm going to do the TGFBI, and I'll probably do a draft champions league. So make it three and uh, and leave it at that and leave myself open if somebody invites me into something exotic and kind of fun that I think is fun. So I'm going to try to keep it to three, I think. I think three is a pretty good number. That's what I, I cut down over the last few years, and I think I'm going to draw the line at three this year. Just I found that having more, uh, I just don't have the mental energy, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, uh, just keeping track of everything and the, all the implications, you know. The, I mean, every day you, you you look at the news, one guy gets hurt, three guys get hurt, that affects three other guys. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's exhausting. You know, this is supposed to be fun. I'm going to have fun. Have you thought about entering into one of those, uh, the best ball type formats where you only have to make moves like once a year and, uh, and the computer figures out which of your 50 guys had the 23 best performances? Yeah, sure. I'm, and I would be happy to do that if, uh, uh, I might, yeah, I might just 
get into one of those. I, I played them before and uh, and actually did pretty well in them, uh, at least the first year I was in. And and then they have this relatively new thing called the Gladiator format. Have you seen this? I've seen it, but I didn't. I started looking at it, and my eyes glazed over, and that was it. Yeah, it's it's it seems interesting on it on the surface, and I wonder if it's anything that seems easy on the surface is usually not so easy when you get a a, a couple of inches under the water. Yeah, well, I mean, somebody should have come up with a better name because when when I see like Gladiator, I think of you know, lions eating Christians in the Colosseum, you know, and uh, MMA, yeah. Um, so, yeah, somebody should come up with a better name than Gladiator. I mean, does it mean one-on-one? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. All no, right. I, well, it, it, I, it does in real life. It has no bearing on how the game is played. It's not a one-on-one co- uh, context. Oh, well, then it's been misnamed. Yeah, it really has. As I understand it anyway, you just draft a 23-man roto roster, like two catchers, first, second, third, et cetera, nine pitchers, and then that's your roster for the whole year. And if you lose a guy to injury, tough. You, you know, you just go through, and basically it's a, a survivor type of thing where basically the, the uh, fantasy manager whose team suffers the fewest injuries is probably right. likely to win. And uh what people like about it, of course, is that you don't have to make any moves. You can just uh, trust your acumen on, right. especially on injury management and risk management or risk assessment, I guess, at draft and, and try to put together a team you think's just going to survive the, the grind. Yeah, I, th- I would do that um, if, if invited. but I uh, And I think that I would do it the way I draft an AL only or, a, or an NL only team, you know, going with not taking any chances going with that bad, you know, plate appearances and pitchers who are going to actually pitch and, you know, like that, make sure you get two closers who were reasonably stable. Ha ha ha. <laughs> uh, uh, like that. But yeah, I, I mean, I have no philosophical objection to it and, and I probably do it. I just don't want to do any, uh, something like that is doesn't really affect your preparation for other things. So that, that makes me more inclined to do it. Yeah, that's a question I've asked other people is when you're getting ready for a gladiator format draft, it seems like in some ways the preparation might help you in your other drafts because what you're trying to do is identify playing time and and find pockets of playing time where other people might not realize they exist. And if you are successful at that, then that applies across every format. If you get playing time, you tend to do better than if you don't. Right. It's kind of a dangerous game, though, because... There are so many players who aren't quite full-time, and there are so many uncertain situations around Major League Baseball where it seems like the teams don't want guys to play full-time. And that really, you know, that works against you all the way. So you really have to be careful about playing time, and it's it's not that easy to do. And I think... You make a good point that certain major league teams are much more aggressive about swapping guys in, and I think of Tampa, of course, and other teams have lineups that they just roll out there every day. The Dodgers comes to mind, Atlanta, basically the good teams. But I think Toronto's going to be like that, except at the bottom of the roster. I think the top five guys in their batting order are going to play every day if they're not hurt. And it's that that's the kind of thing that I think people in those league formats are going to be looking at on the offensive side, on the defensive side, or the pitching side, I should say. 
I think you just look at pitchers and think who in this collection has not been hurt in the last couple of years because uh, and 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 is you know over 26 or 27 years old because it seems like right. those are the kind of guys who have a bit more staying power. Yeah, I agree with that. That's that's how I would do it. Uh, from your own experience uh, reading the ever burgeoning fantasy media gene, have you noticed anything so far in uh, fa- in baseball or fantasy baseball that uh, might have created some opportunities for fantasy managers to zag while everybody else is zigging? I haven't really noticed anything. No, um, I, I I think that uh, usually what I try to do is I, I do read as much stuff as I can and I look for holes in it. Like I'm sure people, when they read my stuff, they're looking for the same thing. They're looking for holes. Where is he wrong? Type thing, which is fine. That's the way you should do it. Um, and then I just pick a spot here and there. And then I look at the ADPs and I say, hmm, he's a little low. He's a little high. Um, I have noticed it with specific players that I think um, that I think are too low or too high, but uh, nothing in general. Gene, uh, you're the fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic, and you'll be providing some position reviews in your fantasy baseball column at The Athletic as we trundle towards opening day. But you have some work that you shared with me ahead of time getting ready for that, and I'd like to look at a few players at each position to get your takes and to tickle the interests of listeners into maybe looking at your work at The Athletic. But before we start, when does the series start to appear at The Athletic website? Uh, I believe it's going to start next week. Um, I thought it was going to start this week, and if it were up to me, it would have started this week, like the, like the minute after the Super Bowl ended. Um, but I don't make the choices, so I think next week it's supposed to start. I've handed in two of my positions. I'll hand in another two or three over the weekend, and then um, they'll run, I think, every other day starting next Monday, but I'm not 100% sure about that. I noticed when you sent me your uh, your draft, and I mean draft in the sense of a sketch, I noticed you didn't have any pitchers. Why is that? Well, because between Eno Saris and Greg Jewett at The Athletic, they do it much better than I do. Um, their pitching work, I think, is fantastic, and I don't have very much to add to it. Um, maybe a couple of strategic, tactical things is about all I can say. And so I just stick to the hitters. And listen to them. What do you make of uh, Eno's work with the Stuff Plus and Pitching Plus and Location Plus uh, as far as uh, being a help to you in in making your determinations about pitching? Well, I think it's terrific. I think he's asking the right questions and going around getting answers to them. And as long as you're asking the right questions, you're going to come up with good answers. Um, And so... You know, I'll always look to see, well, you know, maybe there's something in the margins, and we always have to uh, be aware that just because that skills, that even skills are not carved in stone, and that they change all the time. But Eno tries to keep track of that stuff, too, and changes in the, in the, in the repertoire, changes in, you know, the shape, the velocity, the, the number of inches of break, that sort of thing, and and lets people know when they happen, and that's... You can't ask for more than that. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that I do every season is, as the season goes along, I collect the uh, 
the uh, StatCast data week over week, and then I compile it at the end into one big spreadsheet. So I've got every pitch that was thrown in the big leagues that year and all of the outcomes and how much the pitch has moved and stuff. And the, the, the data, when you look at it in that way, is really overwhelming. And especially when you start talking about pitch movement and, and velocity change and that kind of stuff. And I think what Eno and his uh, partners in those uh, Stuff Plus, Location Plus, Pitching Plus metrics are doing is they're synthesizing all of those discrete data into manageable concepts that you can look at on a, on a list and say, oh, look, this guy's got a Stuff Plus of of 116 that's really good and and uh, if you look under the hood a little more he they do it for each individual pitch and you can see oh this guy's got three pitches that are all positive stuff plus i like that and then you can start uh, pricing it out and start realizing that hey this guy's underappreciated or overappreciated whatever the case might be right and you add in your own estimates of how much the guy's going to pitch um you know are they going to let him go are they going to be careful with them that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, that's where I start out. I'm looking for guys over a hundred and stuff plus and command plus and, and those are, you know, I mean, that's how I pretty much make my rankings, you know, with a little tweak here and a little tweak there. So Gene, uh, let's start with the catchers you said in one of your player profiles that this year might be the best ever behind the dish for fantasy managers. Uh, how come? Well, I mean, I, as I go and I, um, and I'm doing my rankings, I, I noticed that Mitch Garver is my 20th ranked catcher. And, uh, you know, Mitch Mitch Garver is a guy who probably would have gone 6th or 7th if he had done, you know, coming off last year. Last year, he, that's where he probably would have gone. This year he's 20th. And, I mean, I might have lower than some other people, but in any case, there's certainly 20 catchers and, uh, that are worth drafting. And that's unheard of in my experience. I mean, I, I, I've always been... I mean, I think all of us have been always struggled to to find even 15 decent number one catchers, and now it's should be no problem to get two good catchers. And just because of the, the top 20, I mean, beyond that, there were still guys who were capable of busting out or exceeding expectations. So that's it's a great field, maybe the best ever, I think. Yeah, we're out of the era, temporarily at least, where in that second catcher slot, what you're trying to do is not hurt yourself. You're just trying to get somebody who's going to be replacement grade or maybe slightly below rather than just a a killer in all five categories. And as you said, uh, I think your positioning of Mitch Garver is pretty accurate. Uh, He's been going relatively late in drafts. And in a draft I was in on the weekend, he went quite late. And I thought, man, that's really late in the draft to get a guy like Mitch Garver. And so I, I think you're spot on there. You pretty much have the chalk nominees at the top of the catcher position, but I was intrigued that you put Sean Murphy of Atlanta ahead of his ADP in the market. What do you see in Sean Murphy that other graders might be missing? Well, I, I see high average power. Um, there is a little bit of a question about his playing time because the Braves like to split catcher time more than other teams. But he's going to hit for average, he's going to hit for power, and he's in a great lineup. Um, and he doesn't bat at the bottom of the lineup either. So, um, I mean, uh, as a C1, he's your basic guy. When when the, the big names start to go, I'm very happy to take him at the end of the run, him or Wilson Contreras for that matter. 
In uh, the second value tier, you put Houston catcher Yainer Diaz with mid-teens dollar value. And I have to say, I had him a little higher based on what I've seen so far in his career. What's your take on Yainer Diaz? Well, I think he's a fine hitter. I think he's good enough to DH. And, you know, in my mind, I'm not disparaging him at all. Um, I'm a little concerned because he hasn't done it over time yet. And you do have to watch for... um, catchers in their second year playing every day to watch for the, you know, they do have a long history of declining. Um, but I think he hit well enough to DH at times. Um, and that's, you know, that's why I have him at $16. I, I don't think that I'm selling him short. I think that I'm, you know, I, as usual, I try to lowball a little bit with everybody. And I wouldn't mind going another buck or two if I felt that the need to do that. Um, I don't think it's going to happen this year because it's because as we talked about the depth of the catcher position, but I'm going to, I'm going to take whoever it is. Who's, uh, who's priced right. Cause there's so many of them. I'm not knocking them at all. And you said you rank Seattle catcher Cal Raleigh lower than most. Uh, how come you're not so crazy about Cal Raleigh? It's not that I'm, I don't like him. It's just that I like other, the other guys more. Um, you are you are going to have to deal with a, a a low, maybe very low batting average, but I still think he's going to hit you know twenty eight home runs and produce. Um, so I again, he's a guy that I would be happy to fall back to, but I'm not reaching for him when I see guys who have more uh, more potential to to do better, especially with batting average and. Not only that, but you got the Seattle ballpark and, and lineup, which is not great. Yeah, I think the batting average issue is something that bears thinking about when people are considering the roster builds. I know that uh, I've read this theory that you can afford a guy like Cal Raleigh if you've started, you know, with. I don't know, Freddie Freeman, who's going to hit 300, and Bo Bichette, who's going to hit 300. Then you have, then that kind of offsets the. 220 that you're going to get from Cal Raleigh. And I'm not sure I buy the logic because I know that it's a big roster and there's lots of plate appearances and all of that, but it's still not nothing. And if a guy is is producing a low batting average, to me, that's just a kind of a proxy for saying he's not getting a lot of hits. And if he's not getting a lot of hits, then that reduces his opportunities to score runs. And it's not it's reducing his opportunities to drive in runs. And those are things that are kind of at one remove affected by the lack of hits. And in uh, Cal Raleigh's case, uh, the reason for the lack of hits is uh, there's a lot of strikeouts in there as well, which is even worse. Yeah, you're right. Um, You can compensate for the lack of hits if the guy walks a lot. Um, So that's, that's one thing, but but yeah, I mean, batting average is a gateway cat. You know, it, it, it opens up the other four categories. Of course, no steals for him. But uh, given the choice between the two, I'll I'll take the two or three fewer homers if I'm getting 30, 40 points at PA. I think that's wise, and that's why they call you the wise guy. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. And let's look at your first baseman, Gene. You have Vlad Guerrero of Toronto, fifth among first basemen. 
you say one great year, now four years of meh, which is pretty accurate. But I think to be clear, that's one great year in the middle of four years of meh. So it's uh, meh, meh, great year, meh, meh. Maybe the pattern is great year. And you wondered also, I noticed, if his weight has been getting in the way, his fitness. But he's been telling Toronto media that it has been injuries, especially wrist and knee injuries, the last couple of years. He's been working out in the offseason and coming to camp. Stop me if you've heard this before in the best shape of his life. So two questions. How do you account for preseason declarations of fitness, better attitude, and other such factors? Well, I take it seriously when he says he's been playing hurt uh, because it provides a, an instant explanation for the, for the it's not bad performance, but you know, mediocre compared to what people were expecting from him. Also, I have to say that uh, you know, whatever it is with his weight, um, he has increased his strike zone mastery. I mean, 14.7 Ks and 9.8 walks is pretty darn good. Um, so, and his hard hits are fine too. Um, those kind of skills say that he should be better than he is, and he's still only 25. Um, so I think, and also the other thing is when you've had a year as great as his great year, you usually do get over, get your OPS over 900 a few more times in your career. Um, so uh, I think that it's maybe go the extra buck. I mean, he's going in the third round, I think, this year, and uh, that's a good place to take him. And what do you make of news that a player has been visiting Driveline or one of those other performance factories? I definitely take it seriously. I mean, I like to see it backed up by a little by results, and I don't take the early spring results seriously at all. But as 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 the spring goes on and the good pitchers start pitching more, uh, you look at his you know his strike zone stuff, his hard hits, and and. and the underlying skills and, and if they're there. But yeah, I always perk up when I see a driveline thing. I do too. I think it's really valuable. And I, I noticed that a couple of people, I don't remember if it, if you were one of them, commented that one of, of Vlad Guerrero's issues when it comes to creating fantasy value, not on field value, but fantasy value is he, he hits too many line drives, which sounds crazy, but to get home runs, he needs to get the ball in the air more, and that means a swing adjustment and all that kind of stuff. And I wonder what you think of that, given that sometimes when players adjust their swing planes to get more lift, they also start hitting more fly balls, which means inevitably more outs, and there goes batting average and uh, all those other things that go with it. It's possible, but I think a guy with his talent, um, he'll figure it out. I mean, he's got the... And to be honest, if he's hitting the ball 110 miles an hour um, and it puts a dent in the left field wall rather than going over it, you know, in the course, over the course of the season, I think we'll be okay with that. After Vlad, and of course this is coming after the other big guns at the position, Freddie Freeman and so forth, uh, but after Vlad, who's kind of the end of that top tier value, in the next tier you have Spencer Steer, Christian Walker, Tristan Cassis, and Yandy Diaz. Uh, who you got amongst those guys? Well, I like Steer. Um, I had him last year. I watched him a lot, and um, in his first you know, real season, he mastered the strike zone, which I think is great. Um, he slugged higher on the road, which I think is great, especially for a red. Um, 
he finished strong. I like that too. Um, so I and he's fast. Um, so I think that he's going to fully repeat. He also qualifies in a zillion positions, so that's another uh, another bonus. So I, I you know people people talk about regression, but it is absolutely wrong to speak about regression when a, a player has not established a mean to which to regress to. Um, so I like him. I also think that uh, Tristan Cassis is going to hit for high average power, no stolen bases. Um, but I think that his his skill set, I think he emerged. Um, I don't think there's any turning back for him. So I think we're going to get high average power for him for several years going forward. Guy, I think, is underestimated in this group is one of those guys that uh, Dave Potts, the very successful fantasy player, calls boring old veterans. And that's Christian Walker. I think he's chronically underestimated by the fantasy crowd. He always goes two rounds too late and he always seems to produce two rounds better than he gets drafted. Yeah, uh, I, I can't disagree with that. Uh, my gut, you know, my comment on him this year was that my gut says no, but when you look under the hood, everything that he did is repeatable. And uh, far be it from me to contradict Dave Potts. Maybe you can just riff for a second on this idea of repeatability, because I know that it's it's been important in a lot of your uh, fantasy baseball analysis. Yeah, well, I think that when a guy comes up, um, he shows something, the league adjusts to him, does he adjust back? Um, once he's shown that, then as far as I'm concerned, he's repeatable. Um, you look at, even when the, the underlying metrics are not, ideal i mean they can't be terrible but if a hitter has shown the results and already repeated the results i think we should conclude that they are indeed part of his skill set and repeatable you know we always keep an open mind because nothing nothing in this game is 100 percent. so you know you're always looking for the exceptions but um yeah i do draft on based on repeatability and look for you know, anything that's going to get in that way or that's going to reinforce it. So taking Christian Walker as an example, he stole 11 bases last year after two and zero zero the last few years before that. Of course, a lot of that has to do with the new rules, maybe some changes in management philosophy, those kinds of things. But if you were betting on an over and under of 11 for Christian Walker stolen bases this year, based on a sample year of one, what would you think? Eight would be my over over under. In other words, I don't think he's. You know, Keith Hernandez always says that anybody can steal fifteen bases, um, just based on what the game gives you. Um, and I think that's true. And under the new rules, I think it's even more true. Um, the Diamondbacks were a stolen base team last year, so he's in a way he's joining the party. Um, I think I'm being conservative when I say eight. Um, if you took the over on 11, I don't think he's going to steal more than 15, but I think he's going to be somewhere in there, and I think that that's something that you can bank on when, you, when, you're, uh, when you're betting on it. He's not doing it on speed. He's doing it on brains and watching what's going on and knowing that I can get to second base before this pitcher delivers the ball and the catcher gets it to second base. And that's, you know, in many cases, that's a fact. It's not a, it's not a, a, 
a guess that we're making. You look at the timings involved, and it's a fact. Yes, he could do that. So he is going to do it. Interestingly, only four caught stealings in his entire career, and he's he's only stolen 23 bases, but that's like an 85% success rate, and he's not the fastest guy in the world, so I think, you know, he's probably a pretty good exemplar of what Keith Hernandez is talking about because he's kind of he's kind of like Keith Hernandez in his build and age and all that kind of stuff, and here he's out there stealing bases, so there's something to that. Uh, the next tier down in first baseman, you've got Paul Goldsmith, uh, Josh Naylor, Reese Hoskins, Vinny Pasquantino, Italian Breakfast, uh, Mount Castle, Torkelson. Uh, who you got amongst those guys? Um, now, some of these guys I would dearly love to have as my corner. Um, Goldschmidt's going to go too high for that, so I'm, I'm not particularly interested in him this year as my first baseman. I think Josh Naylor has better things coming based on what he's done and what he did. Um, he's going to be in a better RBI spot this year, although not so good for runs because the lineup does peter out after him. I think Reese Hoskins is a consistent guy. He's going to hit his 28-29 home runs and hit 245. Um, so that's nice at corner infield. Pasquantino uh, was a bit of a disappointment last year, but there were no real changes in his skills. And I think that most people thought that he would have gotten it together if he hadn't gotten hurt. And then finally is Mountcastle on the Orioles. And he is another dead setup for 100 RBIs because he's going to bat no lower than fifth, and he's almost certainly going to bat between two left-handed hitters, and he loves lefties. So he's going to bat, you know, probably fourth or fifth um, with a ton of on-base percentage batting ahead of him. So he doesn't even have to be that good uh, to drive in 100 runs. Not that he's a great player, but he makes a you know, nice contribution as your corner infielder, and that's, that's very doable in drafts. I've seen some preseason concern that Mountcastle might not be as locked into that first base playing time as we really would want in a mixed format where plate appearances are so important. Yeah, uh, it's possible. I guess he has to start reasonably hot um, because the team isn't going to tolerate anything that gets in their way of winning the World Series, which I'm sure they're that's what their their goal is this year. But, I mean, he'll have the job to start with. The rest is up to him. And he's, I mean, he's not a bad hitter. I mean, we're not talking about a guy who's who's over his head in the major leagues at all. I mean, he's a, he's a you know, solid professional major league hitter in very good circumstances. I guess Ryan O'Hearn came out of nowhere to, to really cement himself a position in that lineup. Uh, currently, uh, I know that uh, I think Baseball HQ has Mountcastle as the starting DH rather than the first baseman, but I think there's probably paths to playing time, and O'Hearn's a left-handed hitter, so maybe that will enter into it as well. Uh, let's go on to second base. Uh, Gene, you rated Matt McLean of Cincinnati, who's also eligible at short, and rated Mookie Betts, who's also eligible as an outfielder, and you rated McLean as a second baseman, but Betts as an outfielder. How did you decide where to assign positions to McLean and Betts? Well, my rule in, this year in doing it was I, I ranked them where they played the most games, but I broke the rule with McLean because I think it's uh, in almost all teams he's going to be drafted as a second baseman. Um, 
I don't think so. I, so Betts was ranked in the outfield, and if he were at second base, he would rank first. Um, but I, I think McLean is a guy who is a little bit under the radar, which is unusual for a, for a guy who came up and did what he did. Um, he has a little bit of a strikeout problem, but, uh, but it's not that he's swinging and missing. It's that he's taking strikes, and that's the best kind of strikeout problem to have. He's got opposite field power, and I think that he'll learn how to pull a little bit more. Amazing 90% sprint speed, and he was willing to run, and he hit for batting average with the sweet spot percentage to back that up. So uh, basically, to me, this guy is a five-cat hitter um, until proven otherwise. So I think he's going a little too low. You have Zach Geloff in company with uh, bigger names like Jose Altuve and Ozzy Albies. Make your case for Zach Geloff in that illustrious company. Well, I do have him behind those guys, so uh, to be fair to me, which I always <laughs> want. Um, no room for fairness in this. <laughs> right. Um, put him in 150 games and he comes out to 30-30. Um, again, the speed thing is fully back, 91% sprint speed. Uh, I'm not so sure about the power, but I do think he's going to hit 20. Um, he's a terrible lineup and ballpark, but he did what he did in that ballpark. And the lineup is weak, but he's batting second. So that, you know, knocks a lot of that out. Um, and there was one little thing that I mentioned in him, and I don't think this is a big deal, but I just is that hitters that are on really bad teams, um, that is to say, bad hitting and bad pitching, I get one little edge, and that's that they see a lot of here hitted pitches in the fifth inning because the team is losing 9 nothing, and who cares if he hits a home run? Um, I don't think it amounts to very much, but I think it's something that, you know, a couple of times a year it might give him a, give him a little edge. Um, I watched Geloff for signs of a late fade and did not see any, so... I think that's where I've got him where I've got him. And, uh, I think he's going to pay out. You're also interested in Bryson Stott of Philadelphia. How come? Well, because uh, he established himself in 2022 and he did better in everything in 2023, except his speed. And in the speed, he just translated that into 31 stolen bases. He was no faster. He just used the new rules brilliantly um I, mean, I don't think he's a great player but i think he's a damn good player um i have a, a little behind the others because he bats lower in the lineup although it is a good lineup um and i i just think he's a professional established um minor uh, contributions across the board with the stolen bases that will probably repeat which is a you know 30 or 31 is a major contribution so um, I think he's earned his spot and he's going to stick there too. You said, uh, Bryce Terang of Milwaukee could be more valuable by hitting fewer home runs. How does that work? Well, I mean, if he, uh, my thinking is that if he really muscles up and, and gets lucky, he'll hit 11. Um, and if he paid no attention at all, the home runs, he did three or five, um, so what I should do is turn himself into an on-base machine because he's got fantastic speed. Um, he's a number one pick. He's got a ton of talent. He's a great fielder already. I mean, last year he didn't do that much, 
But if he turned himself into an on-base machine who ran wild, I mean, then he becomes a really valuable championship caliber player. And I'm not saying that he's going to do that because that kind of stuff is not bettable. But I would keep my eye on the stolen base column and and, uh, his on-base percentage, especially in the spring, especially later in the spring. Certainly room for improvement at 285 on base percentage last season is not going to get him much time at the top of the order in another team that's got pretty uh, big ambitions, I think. Uh, A lot of touts are mentioning Luis Rangifo of the Angels in the second base category. Uh, What's your take on him? I think he's solid. I think he's going to be repeatable. Um, I think he starts every year uh, as a part-timer because he gets lefties much better than righties. And the team is probably going to be looking for somebody who can hit righties. Um, so he might hurt him in early in the season, but he always seems to get into the lineup because of injuries and because of underperformance um, and do what he does. And I think that that's, he's safe to do, to repeat, I think. All right, let's move on to the shortstops. After the big three, of course, Bobby Witt, Trey Turner, and Corey Seager. In fourth spot, you have the veteran Francisco Lindor of the Mets, and I think Francisco Lindor is being underappreciated. What's the appeal of a 35-year-old shortstop to you? Well, best sprint speed since 2018, and he's already got the base running skill. Um, So in theory, he could steal more bases with less speed. Um, And so I don't think it's, I think it's good to to pencil him in for 30. his power was maybe a little up last year, but he's still going to hit 25, and his batting average regression points upward. So uh, I think he's a I think he's a thirty dollar player. Of the two unicorns, uh, O'Neill Cruz and Ellie De La Cruz, you're taking O'Neill Cruz. How come? Because he's going after Ellie. Um, isn't it, isn't it amazing to you that these two guys? I mean, O'Neill comes up, and he was, he's an utterly unique player in baseball history when you look at the size and the skills. And the and then the next year, a guy comes up who's just like him, only he's three years younger, and he's a switch hitter, and hell, they even almost have the same name. Um, it's amazing. That just amazes me. Um, but Ellie, Ellie was demoted to the bottom of the lineup at the end of last year, and that's where he belongs doing what he's doing what he was doing at the end of last year. Now, I think that growth is possible. In fact, I think it's likely, but I don't see any reason. I don't, you know, O'Neill was doing all the same things before he got hurt, so, and he's fallen. He was way higher last year, so I think O'Neill is, is the place to park. I got Vaughn Grissom as my middle infielder in my draft last weekend, and uh, I was reviewing my draft with the wise guy baseball, and you seem to think that uh, Vaughn Grissom's an okay get at that point. Uh, how come? Well, I think he's already established that he's going to hit for average. I don't think, don't bank on a lot of stolen bases, but, um, you know, he's he's got Fenway Park to help him with his average. I think that he'll get to, I think he'll get to like 18 to 20 home runs. I'm not sure where he's going to hit in the lineup, so I pencil him in at sixth and, and maybe adjust from there. But I, I mean, I think he established with the Braves that he's a major league hitter, a good major league hitter. Um, 
I, I wouldn't be thrilled if he was my shortstop, but I would be thrilled if he was my middle infielder. Well, that's where I got him. Uh, let's go on to the hot corner. Uh, Gunnar Henderson of Baltimore is near the top of your third base heap, but not without caveats. Uh, what are the issues with Gunnar? Well, I'd like to see him run a little bit more before I uh, put him in the get him in the second round, um, which is basically where he's going, second and third. Um, he also had a lot of trouble with lefties, but that doesn't bother me because none of these guys see a lot of lefties until they get to the major leagues. And he really looked like he grew against them late in the season last year. Um, uh, he had some tremendous at-bats against tough lefties. So he's driven. I think he's going to, I think he's going to get respectable in that, in that, in that uh, regard. And therefore he's on, he's on the way up. I just think that he might be a little, People might be a little too enthusiastic about him until he steals more bases. Baseball HQ is only projecting him for 12 stolen bases, so I think that'll be a, a bit of a disappointment if that's all he comes up with this year to anybody who's drafting him. Uh, he went in the third round in my draft, and I think that's pretty common. Uh, in discussing St. Louis third baseman Nolan Arenado, you say, and I quote, perceived scarcity is almost always an illusion, at least in the sense that talent emerges every year at every position. What did you mean? Well, um, that's what happens. Um, I remember last year I had a firm line. I forget who who I drew it under. Um, I don't want anybody below this. Um, But there were plenty of guys who wound up being worth it who were drafted below that line. And there were guys above that line who did not pan out. Um, it's just a preseason. Our preseason rankings are like a snapshot. They're, the, they're like the best we can do at that time on draft day. Um, but they're not really accurate. And they're not going to be accurate. Even if there were only 10 third basemen, this year who were really worth drafting, which I don't think is going to happen. But even if that were true, they would not be the first 10 guys drafted. So therefore, drawing a line under number 10 is guaranteed to be wrong. Yeah, you, I think you said uh, it's possible but not likely that there will be only 10 third basemen really worth owning, but they won't be the first 10 guys that get drafted at the position. So, And I think historically, I think that's how it always works out to be. So uh, I think you're right about that. So if you look down sort of in the lower ranks of the third base position and you start thinking about who might pop up and be one of those guys who replaces a top 10 guy in the top 10 uh is there anybody that really jumps out at you that you like? Well, they got these young guys. I mean, uh, Kobe Mayo, uh, Colt Keith, um, uh, Jake Berger, um, mighty impressive. Uh, Brian Hayes is a guy who's not spectacular, but he's got an outside chance to hit 300. Um, and he could be a nice fit depending on your, uh, um, Tyler Black of the Brewers is another guy who, who who has a really good change of speed guy, and may wind up playing third base for the Brewers, and then not a lot standing in his way. Um, so yeah, those are the names that that, that come up to me that the most likely I think to to emerge. Yeah, Cabrian Hayes has been a little bit of a 
disappointment over the first few years of his career because everybody thought so much more was going to happen, but he seems to have settled into a pretty good place. I know Baseball HQ's got him for projected for around 600 plate appearances, near 20 home runs, kind of 15 bags, 263 average. Those are decent stats if you're getting them uh, relatively late in the draft. Yeah, and he came on last year. He had a slow start and came on after that, which I liked, uh, especially with his slugging. I mean, if it doesn't translate to a lot of home runs, he's still going to hit some home runs and hit doubles. Um, so uh, I think he's on the way up, and uh, I think he's one of those guys that took a little time to establish himself, but uh, he has established himself and and is going to do at least as well as he did this year. You've got to take into account the team context. It's going to be a little grim, I think, trying to score runs or drive in runs in that Pittsburgh lineup. I think Cabrian Hayes is probably going to hit second, I'm going to guess. Maybe uh, maybe at the top of the order, the the on-base percentage isn't great, just over 300. So I, I'm not sure where he's going to hit. But wherever it is in Pittsburgh, it's not going to be a real run-producing lineup. Right. I mean, uh, there's no rush to take him. Um, uh but I think that if you're, you know, if you're stuck, he, he's a fallback that is, that is not going to hurt you and has a chance to, uh, for a little step up. Moving on to the outfield, Gene, you say Michael Harris of Atlanta made some important adjustments and now should be given a very high ceiling. So what were the adjustments and how high is the ceiling? Well, he needed to hit lefties better. He, he had faded, um, looked like the league was catching up to him a little bit the year before. And he, indeed, he started slowly last year, but then he just bang, he turned it on. And it, to me, this is absolutely crucial in a, in a second year guy who was rookie of the year um, to show that, yes, I make the readjustments. I could do this. And therefore he's a, he's an automatic star and it's not impossible that he becomes a superstar because he's still only 23 years old. So, I mean, he I, and he's going to move up in the batting order, too. He almost has to. I mean, it's, it's insane to bat him ninth, a player that good. But I guess we can't predict that, but we're, we're, we're bank on that. But the team seems to know what they're doing. Um, so, you know, I think they said they just wanted him to, to say, yes, force us to move you up in the order. And now he has, and now they will. Yeah, you think they should. Uh, that's one of the hazards of having a guy who's on a really, really solid team is that anywhere else he's going to be for sure hitting somewhere really productive. And in Atlanta, because they have so many options, maybe not so much. I think the same is true in Los Angeles where that Dodgers lineup's just heinous, uh, how much ability there is there. So a guy who's hitting seventh in LA would hit third or fourth anywhere else. And you just have to live with that. But the baseball HQ projection on Michael Harris, uh, mid-20s, Homers and RBIs, uh, 90 plus runs, 90 plus RBIs. So we obviously have him somewhere near the top of the order, uh, 324 on base. Everything about Michael Harris is pointing towards a $30 se- uh, season. So uh, get after Michael Harris in your drafts this year. You have a couple of boring regulars, you call them. You could also add productive, I think, in the mid $20 value tier of outfielders. Uh, who are these couple of boring regulars? Well, you got Brian Reynolds uh, on the Pirates, uh, and and as you were saying about their lineup, um, I don't think it's terrible. 
especially at the top. I mean, yeah, it, it will peter out, but I think it'll be okay for uh, for production in the first five slots. Um, he's a guy like that. Um, Randy Arrazarena, I guess, has become a, a, a sort of a boring regular too. And Christian Yelich is a boring regular. George Springer is a boring regular. Um, but they're all mighty productive and mighty good. So, I mean, they seem to be available as your second outfielder, and that's where they should go, and that's right and proper and just. <laughs> yeah, of those, the guy I like is Reynolds. He's just been so durable as well in that uh, in that second round sort of area for outfielders or second outfield range. Uh, you gave a lot of reasons not to draft Asturi Ruiz of Oakland, and I think we know what many of those are, but you said there's also a reason, and I quote, not to let him go too cheap. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, I mean, he's probably going to steal, what, 70 bases? Um, you, you don't want to, you don't want to let your opponents just pick that cherry off. Um, you know the reasons too. The main reason that you, that you can't take a guy like that or you can't overpay for a guy like that is that you can't have two of them. And there are probably going to be guys like that who are available way late. Um, in fact, they're almost definitely going to be guys like that. It's just a question of picking out. There's a ton of speed in the minor leagues that's banging on the door, ready to play. Um, so once you've taken, taken Ruiz, you can't take any of those guys because you can't have two guys like that in the lineup at the same time. Now, I saw a thing uh, where the manager was talking about Ruiz, and he was saying that he wanted him to tap into his power this year, which, I again, I think is ridiculous. I think uh -oh, it's the exact yeah. wrong thing to do. Um, but if he does that, that's even more reason why I don't want him, because then he's not going to hit. Then he's not going to hit 254. He's going to hit 234, and then he's not useless. But he's not. You'll regret paying 20 bucks for him. Put it that way. I remember a few years ago. I forget the player we were talking about, but uh, they were. Somebody was criticizing him because he hit too many slow rollers in the infield. It was like a Billy Hamilton type of guy. It might have been Billy Hamilton. And you were really mad because you said that's exactly what he should be doing is hitting slow rollers to the infield because they're all base hits when you can run like that. But uh, too often, I think, fantasy uh, analysts and, and touts and even major league teams, they just have this idea, a pre-formatted idea of what every player should be doing out there instead of saying, hey, this guy could really run, what we should do is teach him to bunt. Yeah, of course. I mean, now, there's more than one way to skin a cat. You know, Stephen Kwan has pathetic hard-hit numbers and has for his whole career. He's a 282 hitter. You know, use the whole field, hit the ball on the ground. If that's what, you know, if you're trying to hit for batting average, use the field, bunt, you know, bloop, that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, yeah. Quan is a 282 career hitter, and uh, as I say, his, his hard rates are pathetic. There was more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah, but it seems like everybody thinks that the uh, way you skin a cat is you start at the head and work backwards, and you know, they don't they don't give enough credit, I think. And the to their to their credit, the Guardians seem to be 
jumping on players like this who have some kind of unique talent that they can exploit by letting the guy do what he does well rather than saying, hey, you do this really well. Now go get, now go hit home runs. Right. Yeah. I mean, take what you can get. Use the, you know, uh, on-base percentage, speed, defense. You know, there's, there's ways. Every player is limited to some extent. Um, you know, even by the nature, the greatest player, Acuna is limited by the fact that nobody hits 400, for example. Um, you know, just accept your limitations and work on the things that are that you're really good at, and then you can get great at them. You know, I always go back to Brett Butler. You know, I mean, he I'd like to see his hard hit rates. They were terrible, I'm sure. But he got on base and he scored a ton of runs. If they had StatCast in Wee Willie Keeler's era, he might have had the worst... Uh the worst uh, hard hit rates in history, but very effective ball player. I think he's in the Hall of Fame, if I'm not mistaken. But oh yeah, oh yeah. But that it was a different game then. Of course, they were the right. They were using a baseball that was had about as much resistance as a sofa cushion. And <laughs> so yeah, you you, you weren't going to hit it 450 feet. So you had to like lob it out there like a tennis player. You had a positive blurb about Luke Rayleigh of Seattle, and it had an interesting note in it. You said that you had done a study about somewhat established lefty hitters when they got their first shot at playing every day, which means they weren't being platooned. So what was the result of that study? The result was that more than half of them increased their slugging by 70 points or more. Now, you can't take it too literally because that study is stacked in favor of success. If you start the season and you flop, then you're not going to be playing every day, and so therefore you don't get measured in the study. And then there's also the chicken and the egg question: is is he playing more because he's hitting better, or is he hitting better because he's playing more? But the point is that this happens all the time, every year, in fact. And that a guy explodes; he gets a chance to play every day, and he explodes. And it usually comes about because he hits righties much better. And usually they improve a little bit against lefties, but often they don't even improve much against them. But they do improve against righties, and despite the fact that that Rayleigh has moved to Seattle, which is a tough place to hit, um, that's something to watch for him. And any other left-handed hitter who's getting his first chance to play every day. I remember reading something I thought made a lot of sense in the, in this regard about hitting right-handers and hitting left-handers, and it is that whether you bat left-handed or right-handed, you're going to have seen a lot less left-handed pitching starting in Little League and going all the way to the big leagues. There's just not that many of them. Right. And once you, you hit the big leagues, then you see a lot of them, and you either make the adjustment or you don't, um, or you fight it to a draw. Um which a lot of players, that's the way it works for a lot of players. And, but fighting it to a draw, you can still be a hell of a productive player. I wonder, do you think that left-handed pitching at the major league level suffers for the fact that there aren't that many left-handed pitchers or, or benefits because now you're just getting the elite of the elite and they can get guys out and they have that advantage? Well, I mean, baseball is a lefty's game. Um, uh, I think it's always been that way. Um, I think it is because there are fewer of them. I, I don't. 
I mean, I don't know any other theoretical explanation for, for why it would be. Um, but it's because there are more righties than lefties, and the platoon advantages definitely exist. You called Riley Green of Detroit, and I quote, the new Justin Morno with some speed. That's actually pretty tall praise as a former MVP. So how valuable do you think that makes Riley Green, and what kind of ceiling are we looking at here? Yeah, I think he's uh, uh, he looks great. Um, he has not really established himself yet, so my comic is a little bit on the come, and I could definitely be wrong. But that's what he looks like to me. Um, sweet swing. I think he's going to get results. I think he's probably going to hit third in the lineup. Um, he should anyway. Um, he's a, he's got the pedigree. I think he's going to um, just continue to grow and hit 300 with you know high 20s home runs and, and be a star player. I've seen a lot of places saying he's going to hit second, which. Might even be better. I, I like guys who hit second just because of sure. the extra plate appearances. He's got uh, Torkelson behind him, if that's the case. Uh, I, I really like the possibility of him hitting second or third. I think he really jumped his decimals last year. I, I know he, he was uh, 288, 349, 447 for a slash line last year. And I checked, and Morneau's career slash line was 281, 348, 481, basically exactly the same. So I think you might be onto something there. You say that Brandon Nimmo of the Mets, and I quote, has never had a great year, and he plays this year at age 31. I don't think anyone expects it this year, and yet I do. All right, why do you expect a big year from Brandon Nimmo? Well, because he's got good skills, really good skills. Um He's jumped his power, um, and I think that will stick because he, it's a function of knowing what he's doing. Um, he should have had a year where he hit 300. I think all of us at some point have expected him to do it, and he hasn't done it. Um, and the, the other thing is 31 years old is not too late to do it. Every single year. There are guys who are 30, 31 who have career years. It's not the norm, but it's something that definitely happens. I mean, last year was Yandy Diaz, uh, Marcelo Suna. Um, Jorge Soler didn't have his best year, but he had a really good year. That's the point. Um, and talk about your boring regulars. That's Nimmo. No one expects him to do anything. And, of course, he doesn't run very much, and I'm not expecting that to happen. But I am expecting him to have a year. He should have had a year where he hits 310. And so at where he's going, it doesn't cost you anything if I'm wrong. Because he's still going to hit, you know, 275, even if he's ho-hum. So I think he's just a good play at that stage, a good value for money. And suppose you're late in the draft, you feel like you've got a bit of a deficit in home runs. Do you want Giancarlo Stanton or Joey Gallo? Stanton. I mean, not that I'm panting to have either one of them, but um, at some point I think you have to take Stanton because he's, I mean, he can still crush the baseball. I mean, with Gallo, there's always the question of, I mean, is he going to strike out 50% of the time, which is, you know, he does that sometimes, and he does. And yeah. they're just, yeah, they're just, they're just going to 
you know, throw up their hands and say, forget it. It was worth a shot, you know, goodbye. Um, Stan's going to play, you know, they have to play him or trade him, I guess, if anyone would take him. And he still crushes the baseball. You know, these high strikeout, high fly ball hitters, for all their terrible slumps that they have, they have the amazing streaks. And it's been a while for Stan, and he's not too old to have another one. So, as I say, I, I'm not banking on that by any means. But at a certain point, I think you have to take him where he's going. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. And, Gene, as you know, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. And so... We're looking at coming drafts. Uh, we'll start with your boons. These are players you think look like good value for draft season 2024. Let's start with a batter who could be a boon. I really like Starling Marte. Um, his ADP is about 220. I mean, this is a guy who was going in the second round, third round, not long ago. And while I always thought that that was too overpriced, I mean, he's his, he hasn't lost his speed. He's a 287 lifetime hitter. He should not be going at 220. You take him there. I take him. I'll take him at 180, um, because he's not going to hurt you too much. He's going to be good when he's out there, um, and he's got a good batting owner slot. You know, he's in the whole thing. He's he's got some pop. He's a he's he's Starling Marte. I mean, he's not he's not an afterthought. He's a guy that could really help you. Yeah, I find that uh, ADP quite surprising. Who Who's a pitcher who could be a draft boon 2024? You know, it's funny because I think that the pitchers are going pretty much exactly where they should go in my mind, and it's really hard to to pick to pick one guy out. But I think that the, the one guy I would take is Framber Valdez because not because he's going to win the Cy Young Award, which is not impossible, but it's not. You know, he's not a favorite or anything. But because he piles up the innings, his strikeouts are fine, tons of ground balls, great team. Um, he's just a guy, he's just a solid guy in a world where you can't bank on pitchers to pitch more than 160 innings. Um, so he gives you that, you know, he's going to be good. He's not going to be the best, but he's going to have good ratios and so he's a guy that that I would target. Yeah, he had a terrific year last year. He was kind of in the Cy Young buzz for a while. He tailed off a little bit towards the end, but close to 200 innings. Yeah, you're right. Uh, let's go over to the Baines. These are players you believe are going to be overdrafted this draft season. Uh, who's a Bane batter? Well, I'm unconvinced on Nolan Jones um, because of the strikeouts. I think he's going to be pretty good. Um, but I don't think he's going to be, I think his batting average is going to take a big hit and therefore he's going to be drafted too high. I mean, not a, as a, not a bust, but not a, but a disappointment, put it that way. At where he's being drafted. And, uh, finally, exactly. who's a pitcher who could be a 2024 Bane? You know, it's really hard for me to, to, to find a guy like this and, uh, the only thing is, everyone is expecting Dylan Cease to rebound, and let me tell you, I had this stiff last year, and I was expecting him to be great. He lost velocity. 
His, his command is shaky. The team is bad. Um, if I'm going to take a flyer on Dylan Cease, he's going to be gone in the, in, the realm, in the realm where you take flyers, not in the realm of your number three or number four pitcher. Gene McCaffrey's Boone's Starling Marte of the Mets, Framber Valdez of Houston, his Baines, Nolan Jones of Colorado, Dylan Cease of the White Sox. Gosh, Gene, I was hoping this would be fun, and it certainly was. Uh, tell our listeners where they can keep up with Gene McCaffrey. Well, I'll be on The Athletics starting next week, so keep your eyes open. Um, I haven't been tweeting or Xing, whatever. Um, <laughs> so, um, I mean, that's pretty much all you're going to all you're going to hear from me, except when I come on with you, because I love coming on with you. It's always a great interview. You always ask good questions, and and we, I think we give the listeners uh, value, baby, value. Value, and uh, I hope a little bit of fun. And before we go, the last time you were on, you were talking about a young woman, uh, a singer, who basically is right from your own neighborhood, and uh, I guess you helped move her along or discover her in your own way. Uh, her name was Syl, and what's the latest on her? Well, I mean, she just finished two big tours opening for Stevie Nicks. So, you know, she played Madison Square Garden, the T-Mobile Center's here and all there, and she's this close to superstardom. She's she's a, got a fantastic voice. I mean, re- you really have to listen to it. And, and it's not only technically great, but she's got that emotional it that, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to say the greats have. I mean, really, I mean, I, I urge you to check her out because even though the music is not really my kind of music, but she makes it your kind of music. That's how good she is. She needs a hit. She's that close. She just had a, got a new song out called Bloodsucker that I saw had half a million views. Um, so as I say, she's really close. And get it on the ground floor so you can say, gee, I heard her before anybody knew about her. You know what you say about uh, there are singers who can who transcend genre, basically. I mean, right. When, when you hear them, you just think, I'm so glad I heard this. Country music, jazz, anything you want. And the sort of revelatory moment for me in that regard was um, my dad was an opera listener. And uh, I kind of went, Dad, what do you listen to that for? Can't we listen to the Beatles or can't we listen to Supertramp? You know, the the usual stuff when you're a kid. And he said, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, just listen to this. And he goes into his record collection, which people had in those days, puts a record on the turntable and, and plays it. And it was uh, Maria Callas. Ah. And, and I, I, I'm telling you, uh, I would recommend anybody who's listening to this who likes singing should listen to a Maria Callas record or um, if you have to, a Maria Callas stream on Spotify or whatever because I st- I'm just getting tingles up and down my spine now remembering what that was like when she started singing. And uh, there's there are singers like that, and uh, I think you're right about Syl. I, I had that same reaction when I heard her. I, the music is not the kind of thing I normally listen to, but when she was singing it, I was listening. Yeah, and she got soul, baby. She, you know, I mean, you can't you can't teach that. You can't. You either have it or you don't. And it's funny because she told me, and she was back in town, and 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 I saw her, and she told me that Stevie Nicks told her that she's got it. And so, that's a nice recommendation. 
It is. And it's not bad to have somebody in the business who can, you know, make a phone call on your behalf, open a door on your behalf. I mean, putting her on, on your tour with you when you're her, I mean, she's going to be drawing crowds and, and that crowd, I bet you is really into what Sill's doing. Right. Yes. It, it was, it, it was been a big success. Well, and uh, I hope this is a, as big a success for a podcast. I'm sure it is because Gene McCaffrey, you're always a great guest. Well, thank you, Patrick. You're a great host. Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, writes about fantasy baseball at The Athletic. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports with Ray Murphy next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Starting Pitcher Buyer's Guide, analyst Stephen Nickrand looks at spring arms to follow including American leaguers Shane Baz and Casey Mize, as well as others, and national leaguers like D.L. Hall and Brandon Fott, and many more. The Starting Pitcher's Buyer's Guide is another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here. Time now for our weekly news review and update. And here with the latest is Ray Murphy. Co-general manager, projections manager, analyst, and writer at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome to the show for the first time in 2024. Absolutely. Happy Pitchers and Catchers Week, Petey. Yeah, it'll be just a couple of days, and they'll start be throwing the ball around in Arizona and in Florida. Can't wait to start seeing some spring training action and the stories that come out and all the gossip and uh, the occasional nugget of actual news. Uh, we're going to talk about some nuggets of actual news here in a second, but we have Brent Hershey coming up after this uh, segment to give us the big picture overview of the new HQ, the website update. But because you're the guy for stats and numbers at Baseball HQ, I'm curious about some of that back office stuff. How was the transition for all of your various projection systems and stat gathering operations? You know, it's it's uh, a long and complicated tale, but I'll try to tell the short, short version of it. Uh, our, as I joked in a article that I wrote uh, the day we launched the new website, uh, our old web home at Baseball HQ, the platform that hosted it, was 12 years old. And I knew this because my daughters were born like a month before we launched the website. So that's kind of like etched in my brain. But as I, as I joked in the article, when your website gets to be middle school aged, like it's time for a new website, right? You know, websites are not supposed to last that long, kind of by nature. Um, but as we talked about this, and we've done this in fits and starts over the last couple of years, trying to figure out how to get to all the things we got at this website, a modern web interface, mobile friendliness, et cetera. The data aspect of it was kind of terrifying because A, that's critical to what we do. And B, there are so many formulas, so many complicated calculations buried in the back of the website that the idea of rewriting those on a new platform and trying to test them and verify them and get them all right and make sure the decimal points are in the right places and the signs aren't flipped and stuff like that. You would be chasing your tail until the end of time with that, right? So we, every time we talked about this, as much as I knew we needed to move to a new platform, like I said, it terrified me. Uh, but we actually came up with the actual one right way to do it was found the guys who were able to execute this new website for us they did what I kind of called an organ transplant. They went in to 
our code and actually pulled like in many cases literally copy and pasted all the formulas right and just laid them into the new website you know built a new database there that you know has all the calculations baked in so that i had high confidence that they didn't transpose the signs and you know, move to decimal places and that sort of stuff and sure enough you know i was able we didn't Oh, we didn't expose this to customers because it would have been confusing as all get out. But like, I'm able to sit here. I've still got access to the old website and I can sit here and run a custom draft guide and compare the values that come out of the old one and the new one. And in almost all cases, like the values are within like 40 cents. Like we got it right. Um, <laughs> it was um, a huge relief to me because as you say, the tools and data are sort of my thing. And, you know, it, it was kind of like, turning over my boat and expecting me to, you know, swim for my life. But uh, we got through it. It's, uh, you know, there, don't get me wrong. There's still a little bit of, still some cleanup work to be done on the site. But uh, the I, we've gotten to the point just two weeks in where my confidence in the data and in what we're presenting to the users in terms of uh, the numbers is very high. So that's a very good thing. And the other big technological update that I think is super interesting about the new Baseball HQ site is this new feature called League Sync, which kind of replaces an earlier feature and really, really updates what was available on the, on the old system. Yeah, this is interesting. You know, I'm super excited about it. We actually haven't rolled it out yet, but it's it's always interesting to me in this process what you learn along the way and. For me, one of the things I've learned, you can look at, you know, there are ways with Google Analytics or whatever to study like what parts of your website are trafficked and what aren't, right? And we've known for years that the current, on the old website, the current sort of league manager tool, which we called Mac, was lacking, shall we say. Like you had to put in your rosters by hand, the reports, the, again, like I was saying earlier, the calculations were solid, but the reports were funky to work with. The presentation wasn't great. The, everything about the tool was just tedious. And I'll admit, I had mostly stopped using it except for a couple of very specific purposes. Yeah, and, and my impression was that most of the users had done the same. And the analytics data back that up however while that might be true in the aggregate it's surprising how many people i've heard from in the last two weeks were like where's mac i had a report in there of 40 free agent catchers that were available in my league and you know people were you know because the functionality was so important people were obviously more patient than me and we're continuing <laughs> to put up with all the nonsense around the tool to get at the guts of what it told you which was still valuable yeah um so, you know, people just have different fuses for how much they'll put up with, I guess, is kind of the bottom line, right? Um, but circling back to the future, the new LeakSync tool uh, is modern, and I, I think a great leap forward doesn't even scratch the surface. It's one of these things that you've seen on other websites that you can just log into your league website and... Mag automatically the tool will just sync your roster from your league website into our website and there you can run all your reports it now shows your ro roster from your league website with our projections oh wait not just your roster but your entire league's roster so it can run 
projected standings and you can look at who's actually a free agent without having to go to Mac in the old days and like take 20 guys who you were considering picking up after doing a manual search of free agents and checking the boxes next to all of their names and then trying to generate a report to figure out who you should pick up. Now you can just click on a free agent tab and it shows you a list of everybody who's a free agent in your league. You can sort them you know, which admittedly you can do on your own league's website too. But the difference is, again, it's tied to our projections. You can see, you can sort them by projected at-bats or projected dollar value or home runs for the rest of the year or whatever. Um, and that's, I, I, I've been testing it a little bit in the background. It's not ready for prime time yet. Um, and I'm not rushing it out because, you know, really I think of it as more of a post-draft slash in-season tool than a than a pre-draft tool. So sure, there's not yeah. a there, there's not really a pressing need to get it out in mid-February, but you know, a couple weeks, a month from now. Well, especially at the cost of getting it right. Yeah, and I'd rather get it right. You know, we've certainly had a f- couple of bumps in the road with uh, the custom draft guide and other tools in the first week or two since we uh, went live with the new site. I don't want to do that again. And again, there's not an there's not really an incentive to because leak sync is going to be something that you use you know from mid-march through the last day of the season and it's going to be great so uh we're super, we're really looking forward to that um but just in a, you know between that and having a website that you can actually read on your phone without you know needing a magnifying glass and all of the much better representations of data and uh, and all of that sort of stuff it's you know we're only two weeks in but uh, the new site is meeting and exceeding my expectations, and, and we're and we're just scratching the surface. There's so much more we can do with it. It's going to be fantastic. And on your phone, you don't have to like scroll side to side. That's the that's the thing I always dislike about any website. When I go on my phone, and you know, you can't. Right. You can either shrink well, it down to, like you said, microscopic uh, print size, or you can scroll all the way to the right. And then when you come to a new line to read, you got to scroll all the way back to the left. And, but it's actually better than that, too. I don't know if you've read, like, for instance, like a Fact and Fluke article on your phone. Uh-huh. But, like, you can scroll and read the article, but when you get to the table of the data, you can scroll that with your thumb and just push it right, and the table moves right, but the article doesn't. So if you keep scrolling yeah. down, it's right where you left off, and the table is just kind of, you know, kind, kind of floats to the right all by its own without losing your place reading or anything. It's... You know, yeah. <laughs> the web's come a long way in twelve years. Is my point, I guess. Right, and uh, and now we're we're caught up. Uh, you mentioned the the league sync feature ties into uh, a lot of uh, platforms that people use to play their games, but not all of them. Uh, which are the main ones that you have synced in with? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question, I, and I want to sort of set expectations properly around that. Uh, out of the box, the day we go live with it, it's going to support. RT Sports, the NFBC, ESPN, Yahoo. Um, so there are a couple of you know prominent fantasy baseball websites that are off that list, like places like OnRoto and CBS prominently, and also Scoresheet, which I love, and I think we can. So some of these I think we can get done down the road. Uh, we may not have them in time for opening day, and this is one of those things where where they go and where they spend their resources on leak sync it's, it's sort of a it's a pooled or common service across the um that the provider that we're using has that other websites subscribe to as well so this is not a case where i can say like my next priority is x it's going to be a little more um convoluted than that but 
you know, they are still adding websites to it. I've already reached out to a couple of the ones I just mentioned, or our subscribers have reached out and they've expressed interest in cooperating with it. So that's just the starting list and it will, I'm, I'm confident it will grow over time. I just don't want to put um, timelines on it. And I think there are, um, the tool does not allow you to directly import your roster by like doing it the old Mac way and just clicking on player names. But uh, I'm working with, I'm testing some workarounds for people who are in, le in leagues that are on websites that are not supported by the tool now. And I've got a couple of decent ideas and I'll, sh I'll shake those out and write up some uh, possibilities when we launch it. Well, it's all really fantastic. Uh, between you and Brent, we've got a really good idea of what users can expect from the new tool. It's, uh, it's a, it is a great step forward and uh, long overdue. And uh, congratulations to you and to Brent and to all the engineers behind the scenes working on this. It's, it's really a, a fantastic step forward. Long overdue is um, definitely understating it. Uh, there, there's a joke in my day job in my professional life where we did a major upgrade of um, a system a long time ago and we joked that you know it, we didn't get it current but we moved it from like 1970s technology to like the mid 90s you know yeah. this isn't that though we actually got like current cutting edge modern like you know today's standard uh which is great and will serve as well for a long time not just with the features out of the box but being on a flexible and modern platform that is much more easily adaptable. It'll be easier to build new things going forward. It'll be easier to introduce new features. It's, um, it's, it's a great foundation for us to continue to grow over the coming years. Please tell me you're not using AI to replace all the writers. <laughs> no, no, no. Although I've tried. <laughs> I bet you have. Not to replace you, but I've tried. I, I've tried writing fantasy baseball articles in ChatGPT, and yeah, it's not there yet. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, years ago, I can't remember who the platform was, but every week we used to get a write-up that was clearly oh, yeah. auto-written. It was just off yep. templates with macros to stick in. You know, CBS does team. that now. Like, you yeah. know, so and so's team had a great week and picked up seven points in the standings. That you know, right. spurred by you know so and so with five home runs. Right. Like, you know, you write that programmatically all day. Absolutely. Yeah, I had a, f a friend of mine, I used to be in the newspaper business, and I had a friend of mine who was a sports writer, and when they started doing that, I said, I sent him a uh, screenshot of it, and I said, uh, your days are numbered, brother, and uh, he laughed and, and said, you know, he was a columnist, so he thought he was a bit safer than the, uh, you know, standard sports article, which really is kind of something that AI can probably handle. It's it's fairly formulaic, and the the, uh, yeah, the, how are but my but my question is like how are twenty year olds just out of college going to cut their teeth on the agate type or the obituaries or whatever it is when yeah. you know all this stuff is written by computer now people used to have to do that for you know for, for years to work their way up the industry. Hey, it's it's kind of a joking matter now as we look back on it, but I can remember sitting there with the USA Today the Tuesday AL stats came out and. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you'd be, I'd be buried in them for three hours, like going through manually picking out things. And, and, uh, I kept track of the, all, all the pictures who were being used. And I think it really helped, you know, I mean, I, I really knew what was going on in baseball because I was looking at it in, in that depth and it wasn't all being just handed to me 
for in summary form because uh, I I had seen that you know the who was pinch hitting in, in the the last guy off the bench kind of situations it was uh, I think it was a real help especially in those days it, we were mostly playing in deep leagues single single yep. league format four by four and uh, that uh, that has all expanded and life changes and and goes on uh, let's get started with the news uh, let's start with American League hitters. Uh, Minnesota finalized a one-year contract with first baseman Carlos Santana. Carlos Santana just seems to never go away. Uh, Rick Green for Playing Time Today says there are lots of cascading position effects in uh, Minnesota as a result of this signing. Yeah, sort of the big news before this signing with the Twins entering, you know, as we were sort of on on the horizon of spring training was, hey, Brian, uh, Byron Buxton's actually going to play center field. And we all kind of snicker and say, yeah, believe it when I'll see it. Uh, but, you know, sort of that this is kind of a ripple effect of that because it's much more easy to it's much easier to figure out how Santana fits on this roster if Buxton is actually in the outfield. You know, if Buxton vacates the DH spot, then it was really Alex Kirilov who was slotted at first base. <clears throat> and he's got some health issues of his own entering the season. So Santana between first base and DH, if DH is in fact open, can have a path to a lot of playing time here. He's a switch hitter. He provides some much needed pop for Rocco Baldelli. He hit 23 home runs last year. Santana, not Baldelli. Uh, he, Santana hit 23 home runs last year, which would have been second on the team. So that you know, for, for all of the moving parts the Twins have in this roster and you know they've got one of the more interesting sort of team pretzel concepts around where you don't know where everyone's going to be on every given day but they are lacking some you know some thump and Santana does a, does address that uh and last year in 550 at bats Santana hit 240 with a 318 OBP a 429 slug like I said those 23 home runs that fits in the middle of this lineup on an almost everyday basis if as I said between Kirilov and Buxton those guys can be out in the field and leave a spot, presumably DH most of the time for Santana. It's a seven forty seven OPS for a guy of Santana's lineage, shall we say, or is uh, well, let's call it what it is. A guy as old as he is, a seven forty seven OPS isn't bad, and in Minnesota it plays. So I think Carlos Santana is going to be a real interesting guy to watch in drafts this year. Moving along, in 406 plate appearances with Tampa last season, Ray, first baseman outfielder Luke Rayleigh had a pretty good year. 19 homers, 14 stolen bases, about a little bit over 100 runs and RBIs combined, and a 250 batting average, which isn't bad. Uh, Baseball HQ facts and flukes analyst Corbin Young took a look under Rayleigh's allegorical hood to see whether 2023 was in fact a breakout or a fakeout, especially since Rayleigh's now with a new team. What does Corbin say about Rayleigh's chance to build on his successes or at least repeat them in Seattle in 2024? Yeah, there is a foundation here uh, with Rayleigh. He has power and speed skills in spades. It's it's really a matter of (coughs) volume, specifically volume of balls in play because he struggles to make contact. The 64% contact rate is like... I have to reset on this, but it's about 10 points under league average. League average is somewhere in the low to mid seventies these days. Uh, you know, just, it's just a really aggressive plate approach and you know, the, the individual, the underlying components of that poor contact rate, the swing rates, the chase rates, et cetera, all say, 
yeah, he's going to strike out a lot. Maybe, you know, uh, it might, he, those indicators might be maybe five points worse than average as opposed to the 10 on the, on the net contact rate, but he's never going to be an asset for contact, let alone probably even struggle to get back to league average. But when the bat does meet ball, really good things happen. Uh, he, he really just destroys the ball. The power skills, 121 XPX. Uh, our expected power metric is 21% better than league average. He's 84th percentile in bat barrels per plate appearances. You know, he really, and he, and, he, and he pulls the ball, which is, of course, as we're seeing in sort of more recent research, you know, pull side power is much more conducive to being sticky for home runs. So he's got a 46% pull rate, high fly ball percentage at 44%. I mean, these are all the boxes you want to check as far as, when bat meets ball, do good things happen? So that part's great. It's just bat doesn't meet ball often enough. Now, if you look at the other side of the coin, speed, a lot of the same themes. He's very efficient on the bases. His uh, stolen base oper- his, st- his stolen base success rate is 82%. Uh, that's well above that mid-upper 70s range you need for it to be a break-even proposition in terms of run scoring output. Mm-hmm. So the green light should be stuck on. So that that gives him this the double digit stolen base ceiling there, uh, and he plays against righties on the good side of the platoon most of the time. So that's pretty decent news for his playing time. He'll sit against lefties most of the time, but that still leaves room for neighborhood of 475 to 500 plate appearances. Uh, so the power and the speed are there. The batting average is going to be painful because of the strikeouts. But when you take that power and speed and the ADP that's down in 20th round, or maybe even a little bit beyond that right now, you know, that it's a good stat filler down there for that stage of the draft. So the news in the ballpark move to Seattle wasn't great. That's kind of quietly become one of the better pitcher, pitcher parks in the AL, but uh, th- this power and speed kind of plays everywhere. So he might be a little bit of a bargain at his ADP is the way I'm reading it. But Tampa wasn't exactly a hitter's paradise either. No, no, it's not. That's true. And I was wondering about the 249 batting average. Uh, his sounds like his uh, expected batting average was probably, uh, you know, 20 points lower or something like that. Yeah, it's uh, last year it was just nine, uh, two forty nine batting average against a two forty expected batting average. Which well, that's I mean, bad, a yeah, yeah and a two forty expected batting average in the face of that sixty four percent contact rate is actually pretty astounding. That's hard to pull off, and is and is again just a statement of how hard and how well he hits the ball when he does hit it. Yeah, that's something that I think a lot of people overlook is. Even if you strike out a lot, the balls you put in play matter. And so his Babbitt must be pretty high based on the fact that he's just wailing the hell out of the ball. And that makes sense. And it sounds repeatable to me, you know, and, and if he, should he ever get a little bit better at discerning balls from strikes and start swinging more at the latter and, and less at the, at the former, all of a sudden now there's a pathway to more batting average and more balls in play and more home runs and all those good things. So it looks like there's a lot of upside here with Luke Rayleigh. Uh, let's move on to the American League pitchers. No rest for the successful. Uh, the shine was still on the 2023 World Series trophy when the champion Texas Rangers started juggling their bullpen arms. I think everybody does this nowadays. They lost left-handers Will Smith to Kansas City and Aroldis Chapman to Pittsburgh in free agency. They added a couple of right-handers, David Robertson and Kirby Yates, both with some experience as closers. 
Current conventional wisdom says Robertson will close. Right-hander Jose Leclerc will be in there getting a share of the saves. Doug Dennis, our great bullpens columnist, is covering all of these machinations in his regular bullpen buyer's guide column. What does Doug say about all of this turmoil in the Texas bullpen? It is turmoil, and I think you kind of hit the nail on the head as you were introducing that topic in that all teams do this, and bullpens, as they look in February and March, tend to look very different on the whole by September, October, right? Uh, Doug correctly points out that this is not an exactly inspiring bunch going into 2024. But then think about where we were last year. And they ended up winning the World Series, but they didn't add Chapman until midseason. And I still carry the scars of drafting Jose Leclerc in a couple of leagues last spring and watching him just completely not be able to find home plate for the month of April until he got sent to the minors. So that bullpen was a shambles in the first month of the season. And then suddenly you get to October and Leclerc and Chapman are just blowing people away and carrying and, you know, carrying that staff to a world series. So uh, this bullpen is a starting point. It's rejiggered this year. Leclerc based on that October success, probably comes in with a leg up on the job, but we're still splitting the saves projections between him and newcomer David Robertson, who of course is, uh, I don't know if you can use these two words together, but I guess I'd call him a journeyman closer. Is Can you, can we do that? Is that, is that, is that sure. a bastardization of the English language or am I, is that allowed? Yeah, I think that's allowed. It's, it actually describes David Robertson pretty well. Um, and then there's Josh Spores who's kicking around here and, maybe the best skilled arm in the bullpen. And that's damning with faint praise. He is the only reliever that Doug points out, the only reliever in this bullpen with a K minus BB percentage over 20%, which is kind of our, that's not even the closer standard. That's the like minimum acceptable standard for relievers these days. And he's the only guy who projects to make that level. Um, They all have home run problems. Only Robertson's expected to keep his home run per nine under 1.0. So, you know, I would expect, uh, much like what we were, much like I was recapping last year, I would expect a bit of a revolving door here. I would expect that Robertson and Leclerc and even Spores may have weeks and you know perhaps even months on end where they hold the job and it gets rocky and Bruce Bochy spins the wheel and maybe there's a midseason acquisition like Chapman last year. Um, there's uh, there there are multiple pieces here, but they're not all to be excited about. Yeah, it could be that they're going to play it by ear going into the season, roll around with a few of these guys and see what's going on, and then if they have to, they'll go and get David Bednar or somebody like that for another stretch run. Uh, Meanwhile, managers often unwisely, in my view, rely on track record, that whole proven closer thing. The myth has a lot of adherence among the high priests in the dugouts, but what does Doug say about the proposition for new addition Kirby Yates? Yep, another dart to throw here in this uh, bullpen full of mismatched pieces, I guess. But Yates is interesting, partially because of the context we just talked about, right? Uh, you know, It's been a couple of years now, but Yates used to be one of the best closers in baseball. He's got a projected 30% strikeout rate that says he can still bring it if he could bring the walks and the home runs under control. Uh, he was a great closer, you know, several injuries ago. Uh, and even when he was, you know, the home run issues were kind of common then. So that's something that we might just have to deal with. Uh, but 
between Robertson and Leclerc and Spores and the instability that I laid out there, uh, you know, when we talk about that wheel getting spun every, you know, by Bruce Bochy, uh, chances are the arrow will fall on Yates if, at some point, if he is healthy and effective. Yeah, he could get a shot. Uh, and we have some variability in this bullpen, I guess, and that's something we're just going to have to l learn to live with as we look at a really good team still and a team that's probably going to win a lot of games based on their offense uh, and based on their their overall makeup. This is a really good team, and really good teams win games and win and games that are won create games that are saved, and it's just as simple as that. And we know that because the exact opposite. I was going to say, nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. for, our, for our next example in Oakland, the the offense looks more abund. Uh, the rotation, as we'll discuss in a second, pretty rough shape. But Doug Dennis says the Oakland bullpen has some relievers who could get in on the action when they start dividing up the paltry number of saves to be divided up. Let's start with how Doug is apportioning the saves, at least as we go into the season. Yeah, so Lucas Urkeg, uh I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, but I'm going to go with Urkeg, I guess. Uh, he is the nominal closer for reasons unrelated to his skills. Uh, he, he ended the year in the role last year despite a 15% walk rate and a home run per nine over 1.0. So that combination of walks and home runs is exactly what you want in a closer, especially on, on a terrible team, right? So <laughs> uh, Trevor Gott is also new to this bullpen, signed as a free agent from the Mets. Uh, we know you, you can recall that uh, you know, so if God is the sort of token veteran free agent addition in this pen, uh, you can recall that Trevor May sort of played that role last year and rolled and rode that uh, gig in Oakland to twenty something saves. So maybe there's an opening for God to move past Urkeg at some point too. But I mean, do you really want to fish in these waters for the handful of incremental saves you're going to get out of this? I, I I'd rather sp throw my closer darts elsewhere. So you're fishing and then you're throwing darts. That's uh, I'm he, using metaphors. You're yep. staying uh, staying busy on the weekends. Uh, Doug mentions a couple of other relievers who might be more interesting. Yeah, there are other options too, which again makes it harder to fish in these waters because it's not just door number one or door number two. It gets deeper than that. There's Zach Jackson who could be a late game option if you know he can only just stay on the mound. Uh, over the last four years, he's appeared in 100 games total uh, and 54 in one of those years. So that, you know, some simple math against uh, a denominator of 100 tells you how many there were in the other three years. So that's uh, that's kind of bleak unless Zach Jackson suddenly runs into the fountain of good health. Uh, but th the name that Doug really fixates on here, I think for good reason, is Mason Miller, uh, who also comes with a pile of health issues, even more than Jackson. Uh, he's a sort of a starter by trade, but because Miller has been so innings limited in recent years, the A's are putting him in the bullpen this year, just figuring that they're best off trying to get the 60 or 80 innings from him in the bullpen and give him some regular rest rather than try to put him on even a, you know, even a short starters workload. He's as far as how he factors into the closer mix, he wouldn't be a typical closer. You know, they're probably going to handle him like a starter and it giving him longer to warm up uh, when he gets into games. It'll probably be for multiple innings, but those multiple innings could come at the end of the game. He could be a, uh, multi-inning 
sort of closer kind of guy. And I guess that makes sense for the A's because it's not like the A's have leads in the eighth inning five days a week, right? So if it happens to be the random Tuesday when the A's are actually up 5-3 in the seventh inning, hey, Mason Miller's fresh. He hasn't pitched in a week, so let's get him out there. And we won't need him tomorrow either. So if he goes two and a third to close the game out, that's fine. Yeah, that's So, true. I mean, I, there's, there's some logic to that for me. And as for Miller's skills and his stuff, his stuff is absolutely insane. He's, he throws... In the upper 90s, he's got a slider that generated a 47% whiff rate, which is just bananas. Uh, 33 innings last year in between all the injuries. Uh, he had a 27% K rate. So it's a bit of an offbeat draft pick, but the skills are there, and the usage pattern is unique, but also has some logic to it. So if there's a name I would fish with in this bullpen, it's definitely Miller. Oakland also acquired right-handed starter Ross Stripling in a trade with San Francisco. Playing Time Today analyst Jake Crumpler covers this story for Playing Time Today. How does moving across the bay affect Stripling's fantasy value, assuming he had any to begin with? Yeah, Jake Jake expects that Stripling arriving in Oakland to be sort of the veteran ballast for the rotation is probably the best way to put it uh jake speculates about 120 140 innings our official hq projections are a little lighter than that we're 116 right now uh given some of stripling's <coughs> own durability issues over the course of his career projecting a 440-ish era whip around 128 under 100 strikeouts in those 116 innings that all nets out to a dollar value that's a little bit underwater yeah, that sounds about right. Over to the National League we go in Miami. The Marlins traded for utility player Nick Gordon from the Twins in exchange for reliever Stephen Oker to Phil Hertz covering the story for playing time today. My first reaction was that Nick Gordon will have access to more playing time, but what is Phil's analysis? Yeah, I, I, I sort of had that knee-jerk reaction too and was anxious to see what Phil had to say on the beat here. Uh, to reset on Gordon a little bit, you know, Gordon showed a bunch of promise back in 2022. He found his way into 443 plate appearances with the Twins in a multi-positional role. He had 272, which was a little over the skis of a 254 expected batting average. He had nine home runs with power that was a takeover league average, six stolen bases. So, you know, it showed some ability to fill the statute there uh but last year didn't go nearly as well he started out slow hitting a buck 76 in his first 90 or so plate appearances and then broke his shin which you know nothing worse than starting out on a slump and then not getting the chance to play your way out of the slump because you went on the dl when regression was supposed to come and find you uh but, but the marlins opportunity is interesting as phil points out uh Gordon is versatile. There are some playing time opportunities in the middle infield with the Marlins there. Uh, where And Gordon's versatility could allow him, even if other dominoes fall, to appear elsewhere on the diamond. So we'll, we'll have him on the radar. You can think back to, you know, I think it was Garrett Hampson who basically played this role for the Marlins last year and did it unremarkably. But if you go back two years ago, that's kind of how John Birdie's stumbled into that 40 stolen base season being sort of their 10th player Swiss Army ninth knife kind of guy who moved all over the field I'm not saying Gordon Gordon has the 40 stolen base upside but you know in terms of the playing time opportunity I think that's kind of the role I see Gordon working his way into with the Marlins you know that's exactly the name that popped into my head when I read this story it was John Birdie and uh 
I don't think there's 40 stolen bases there, but I wouldn't be surprised to see him get 20 if he got 500 plate appearances and he probably could hit 15 to 20 home runs while he was doing it. I think that's exactly right. Yasmani Grandal signed with Pittsburgh. Yeah, so Pittsburgh's had an issue with catcher for most of the offseason. You know, unfortunately, uh, back uh, in December when they announced that they had lost uh, Andy Rodriguez, who was kind of their incumbent catcher of the future, uh, he's had uh, Tommy John surgery, and he will miss the bulk of, if not all, of the coming season. So that leaves them with now Grandal signed to sort of be the, the the veteran presence here and carry some of the catching load. The internal options are Jason DeLay, prospect Henry Davis, who the Pirates seem to be doing everything they can to try to use him in positions other than catcher, but we'll keep him in this discussion. And Ali Sanchez, are the, so that's four, four catchers on the roster and Grandal, DeLay, Davis, and Sanchez. Grandal coming into this mix last year hit 234 with a 309 OBP 339 slug eight home runs in 363 at bats it's certainly not spectacular but it was something of a rebound from his really disappointing 2022 and also an upgrade on what the pirates seem to have in house here. So you can see how these two sides got together. Uh, now that 363 at bats last year for Grandal was his most since 2019. So as a 35 year old, probably best to not expect that level again, we're probably looking at an at bat total that, you know, I think if it starts with a three at the end of the year, we would say that was a, th- that was a healthy year for Grandal. I think he's more here to be part of a job share. Davis, uh, Henry Davis, who I mentioned, was sort of by default the early favorite for the catching job after Rodriguez got hurt. But now this gives uh, the Pirates another option and also means that Davis may again have the flexibility to swing back to other positions, particularly the outfield, and leave most of the catching to Grandal slash DeLay slash Sanchez. So put that all together and if Grandal is arriving here but Grandal is not an everyday guy and Davis is going to get more at bats in the outfield sort of the process of elimination here is that it might be Jason DeLay who is actually picking up more playing time here uh we're splitting the projected playing time uh between Davis uh, you know and between all three of them behind the plate but Grandal at 35%, delay at 30 and then some Davis between catcher and outfield and Sanchez mopping things up. So uh, we will be looking for more signs uh, from the Pirates during the month of March about how they're going to split this up. But they have a lot of bodies, and for now at least it looks like they will find a way to use all of them. Yeah, I expect Davis is probably going to still see a lot of time in right field and uh, or the outfield in general. And – I think the most interesting thing here, I I don't think DeLay is a minus $16 projected value at Baseball HQ, so he's not really a consideration with 30% playing time or whatever. I guess Grandal might make a second catcher in in some situations. But I think the interesting thing here, Ray, is in multi-season formats, Dynasty and Keeper Leagues, if Davis gets 20 starts at catcher, that he can carry forward to next year, and in addition to being eligible this year, that's a really big improvement in his value as a keeper. If he just stays as an outfielder, he doesn't have that. It's exactly right. So I think he's got a pretty good path to get to 20 games this year, and it's 
kind of the Dalton Varsho model of a couple of years ago, right? Where you want him to catch yep. enough to maintain the eligibility, but you want him to play enough, especially in the outfield, to not have the toll of catching wear him down as the season goes on and keep him in the lineup, you know, 120 games rather than, you know, if he was a, you know, 40% catcher and 10% DH guy, you know, you're getting, you know, he might only play half the time, but, you know, playing in right field gives him the chance to, be a you know a, a pretty much a regular in the lineup, but still with that catcher eligibility, which is as you say the sweet spot for his long term fantasy value. And finally, moving along to National League pitchers, the Dodgers made three moves. Boy, the rich get richer. They signed two free agents and traded one of their relievers. The biggest name in the bunch, of course, left-hander Clayton Kershaw, who re-signs. News analyst Mark Gannon was on this story in Playing Time today. How does the announcement affect the L.A. rotation and Kershaw's fantasy value? For now, not at all. Uh, there's not a lot left in the tank on uh, Kershaw here. Yeah, you'll recall he had left shoulder surgery back in November. Uh, he started a throwing program in January, but he's on track to return into second half and maybe not even early in the second half. <clears throat> but this is another arm for the Dodgers who have so many of them, as you say. And, you know, if you think about it from the Dodgers' perspective, Kershaw joins Dustin May and Walker Buehler on a long list of pitchers who the Dodgers are going to try to manage and massage the inning counts all year long as they're in various stages of rehabbing. So there's talk of a six-man rotation there, and you can see why that makes sense. Even uh, quote-unquote regulars in the rotation like Yamamoto and Bobby Miller are probably going to be innings limited. Uh, So there's there's going to be a revolving door in the Dodger rotation, and later on in the season, Kershaw will be part of that revolving door. We've given him about 90 projected innings right now, which sounds to me like the best-case scenario. Uh, I I would probably set my reasonable expectations at about 60 as opposed to 90, keeping in mind, of course, that the Dodgers are also trying to line up Kershaw to be able to give them some innings in October. So they're they're unlikely to be in a situation where they have to expend all of their Kershaw bullets just to get into the playoffs. They're, they're, they're lining things up for... Uh, the postseason and the Kershaw signing is as much about the postseason as it is the regular season. Anything to note in these other deals? They got uh, right-handed reliever Ryan Brazier. You'll remember him, I'm sure. And they traded away left-handed reliever Caleb Ferguson for some prospects. How does this all roll into Los Angeles bullpen? I don't see a lot of fantasy impact here. Brazier's not going to be in the saves mix. Uh, Ferguson's departure probably means that the high leverage left-handed work goes to Alex Vezia, who pitched very well last year. In the second half, he had a 240 ERA, 25% strikeout per walk in 30 innings. He seemed to really figure out his sort of career-long control problems last year. So if that sticks, that makes him a pretty interesting hold slash stray saves guy in this Dodger bullpen because of course they're going to win a lot of bullpen. they're going to win a lot of games they're going to have a lot of leads and as we mentioned the starting pitching is probably going to be pretty well babied which means there's going to be a heck of a lot of sixth seventh and eighth inning work for the relievers and Vesia will get regular work there so I mean you could tell me right now that just based on that team context that Vesia is going to be top 10 in the National League and holds and I would absolutely believe it 
top 10 in vulture wins too, perhaps that uh, kind of explosive offense you get into the late, late part of the game and you're behind a run or, or tied, you know, you have to really give Los Angeles the benefit of the doubt on any kind of late and close situation. So uh, there might be some vulture wins there. The problem is you can't really bet on them. I mean, if your league is 50, 50 slots deep, yeah, sure. But in most situations, you just can't waste the spot on the hope of getting nine vulture wins from a guy. Uh, earlier this week, Sarah Sanchez had the playing time tomorrow slot for her coverage of all five teams in the National League East, and she focused on pitching in a very solid division in Atlanta. Sarah noted that once we get past Spencer Strider, the rotation looks a little shaky, even after they traded for Chris Sale to shore it up. Yeah, when you when when your idea of shoring something up that's rickety is Chris Chris Sale adding to it to provide stability, yeah, the the, the logic tends to, to tends to break down pretty quickly. Right? Yeah. Um, I mean, but but there are a lot of problems in this rotation. As good as this Atlanta roster is, top to bottom, Max Fried had just seventy seven innings last year between hamstring, forearm, and blister problems. Sale, of course. Uh, started 56 games in Boston over the last five seasons. No, I'm not bitter about that at all uh, because of injuries ranging from Tommy John surgery to a bicycle accident. Uh, Chris Morton is 40 and missed the end of the last end of last season in the playoffs with a finger sprain. So at 40, we have to have durability questions there. So yeah, things are kind of shaky here. I thought maybe ramshackle was a good description, but Sarah thought it made sense to see who might get an opportunity to start when the inevitable injury or stray meteorite befalls one of the guys in the ramshackle rotation, and she found a few potential rotation replacements. Yes, the Braves obviously are aware of the ramshackle nature of their top five starters, so they, they have more options on hand. So Sarah was Sarah was wise to dive into this Uh the, the names she threw out there include Alan Winans, Dylan Dodd, Darius Vines, A.J. Smith-Shaver. Uh, Winans might be one to get some starts after posting over a strikeout per inning last year. Uh, Dodd and Vines are more long shots. Sarah characterized them as maybe round 50 of a draft and hold type dart throws. Uh, but, you know, with more, you know, given their age and pedigree, more dynasty keeper stashes. But for 2024 only, that kind of, if you're looking short-term horizon, that kind of leaves Smith-Shaver. And then maybe a draft pick from last year, Hurst and Waldrip, and then Oscar Nianoa, who missed last year with Tommy John surgery, but should be back fairly early this year. Uh, Smith-Shaver shot through the rotation last year, shot through the system, I should say, up to getting a cameo in the big leagues, uh, found himself even on the NLDS roster in October, uh, kind of a, you know, skyrocket through the system path that is reminiscent of Spencer Strider a couple of years ago, but you know, let's not hang too many expectations on the kid, right? Yeah. <laughs> Waldrip, Waldrip, as I mentioned, was a draft pick just last summer, drafted in June, made it all the way to AAA by September, gave up five earned runs in 29 innings all, all across multiple levels in the minors. He's only 21, so right now we're not projecting major league playing time for him this season, but I think that's something to watch in March and see if we, uh, based on how he fares in the spring, how the Braves ramp him up, and of course, how the ramshackle group in front of him holds up. Uh, I think it's, that's certainly subject to change that we hang a couple of uh, 
couple of projected innings on him for probably later in the season. And then there's Yanoa, who's still only 25, missed all of last season with TJ, like I said, maybe ready to go, not for opening day, but maybe back on a mound by the end of spring training. So you can imagine a month or two in the minors might get him ready to go. He's got a 465 career ERA, a 140 whip across 460 minor league innings. So not only do we want to see he's healthy, but we'd want to see him probably demonstrate some effectiveness before we got too excited there. But just like you were saying about the Dodgers five minutes ago, the team context here is glorious. So you have to sort of be interested in whoever gets slotted into this rotation just because of the the wins, the run support, the bullpen behind them they're going to get. They don't have to be, to, you know, Spencer Strider for 21, the return some positive fa- fantasy value here. I think Waldrop is interesting because, as Sarah pointed out, the Braves have shown a willingness to really aggressively promote their pitchers, uh, even if they're very young or inexperienced. And, uh, hey, do you know what team Huascar Inoa played for at high A when he started in the Atlanta system? Um, I don't. I'll guess Rome. I know that's one of their outfits, but I don't think that's single A. I forget. The Florida Fire Frogs. How's that for a team name? Nice. <laughs> yeah, in Northport, Florida, in the Florida State League. And the team is not affiliated anymore. It's one of the victims of the big cull when uh, Major League Baseball really took the hack to the minor league system. Uh, staying with Sarah Sanchez in the National League East, I'm curious about a pitcher she mentioned when she was talking about late draft targets in Philadelphia. A guy, Christopher Sanchez, got picked in my draft on the weekend. Yeah, I think... Uh, he he's one of these quickly becoming everybody's sleeper in the preseason here is what I'm sort of finding in my own drafts. And if he's everybody's sleeper, he's nobody's sleeper, right? Exactly. Um, we were on him a little bit last year when he, uh, Sarah covered him in uh, playing time tomorrow a year, sometime last summer when he replaced Bailey Falter in the Phillies rotation. Uh, Sanchez bumped up his swing strike rate uh, when he debuted in the rotation in June. It was 12%. By September, it was 20%. Uh, and he was spiking his strikeout rate while concurrently slashing his walk rate, which, of course, is about the best thing you can do. Uh, his ADP right now is 17th roundish. Uh, and to Sarah, she drew a comparison between. Sanchez growing on the job last summer with uh, the breakout season from Ranger Suarez in 2021. But of course, Suarez has kind of failed to follow up on that breakout, mostly due to a number of injuries that he suffered in the ensuing seasons. So is that a reason to pump the brakes on Sanchez? I'm not sure. We don't really, you know, forecast injuries, but then again, he's a pitcher. So maybe we, you know, we, 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 the idea can't be far from our head either way. Um, but that you know, Sanchez seems like he's got a got the inside track on the fifth starter job, and when Suarez is still ahead of him in this rotation pecking order, you know he may you know Sanchez may be closer to moving up that pecking order than getting bumped out of it. So, and again, Philly's also got a really good offense and deep bullpen behind him. So this is another place where the fourth fourth or fifth starter with fan, with good skills and fantastic team con- context, you can understand why. This is a popular sleeper pick. Yeah, indeed. A bit tough of a, of a park context, I guess, but uh, 
You can't have everything, and Christopher Sanchez certainly looks like an interesting guy. Now we've just promoted him probably up to the 15th round or something like that, and people are cursing us even as we speak. Uh, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out in week one of the Fantasy Baseball 2024. We'll talk to you again next week. Looking forward to doing this all season, Patrick. Ray Murphy is co-general manager, projections manager, analyst, and writer at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have our feature expert interview with Brent Hershey, Ray's partner. But first, let me highlight some more great resources at the Baseball HQ site right now. In this week's speculator column, Ryan Bloomfield looks at some recency bias rebounds, granting mulligans for certain 2023 performances by the likes of Dalton Varsho, Ahmed Rosario, and Gene McCaffrey's batter boon, Starling Marte. And in Facts and Flukes, Derek Boyd goes under the hood to look at five National Leaguers, including Kebrian Hayes and Sonny Gray. The Speculator Column and Facts and Flukes, two more great resources online every week at the new BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our second feature expert interview with Brent Hershey. Co-General Manager at BaseballHQ.com. Brent, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be here, Patrick. Thank you for the uh, invite and um, happy to help you kick off uh, yet another season of, uh, of Luster's podcast. How many drafts are you playing this year? Likely going to end up kind of in the 18 to 20 uh, leagues all told, which uh, sounds like a lot uh, to me too. <laughs> um, just sound about like a half a uh, yeah, just a half dozen or though of those are kind of FAB leagues. Um, the rest are kind of some sort of draft and hold format or, or similar types of things. So, um, yeah, it's uh, that time of year. I've completed six of them so far, and, um, yeah, things are going fairly well. Have you dipped your toe in the waters of these gladiator drafts? Uh, I did... Uh, Two of those, yeah, one uh, solo, and then Ray and I uh, did one together. Um, pretty pretty interesting, uh, you know, just that sort of draft and hold, keep everybody all year kind of thing. Um, I, I did not do any last year, um, but I'm looking forward to, to, to seeing how that turns out. Of course, the natural thinking when I was looking at them was, gosh, you got to put a huge premium on health in a format yeah. like that. And I wonder that that seems fairly obvious, but to what extent would you bump a guy up for health over a better player with a riskier health profile? Yeah. I mean, one of the things the actually the first one I did, uh, was soon after we had finished the forecaster. And, uh, one of the things, uh, one of the, one of the methods I used was kind of using some of the charts in the back. There was a couple risk specific, uh, charts back there um, and kind of uh, thought it'd be interesting to draft one of those teams with kind of taking out all of the F health grade guys. Um, so I did that and um, that's one of the things I'm interested in seeing, but I uh, for sure for that draft anyway, and I think it's, I followed it and have followed that some through some of my non-gladiator drafts too, just being aware of, of those health grades. And while, you know, not super predictive. They are descriptive kind of, uh, of, uh, some of the players, of course, that, uh, struggle with staying on the field from year to year. And I think that, uh, 
in a way of kind of lowering your risk profile is a, you know, is a good uh, step to take. I've actually taken to uh, kind of eliminating all those F health guys generally, you know, no matter yeah. what the league format is, unless I'm, you know, in the 29th round or something like that. No, look at this guy. Everybody's shying away because he's got uh, a risky health profile or, or one of the other risk profiles doesn't look that right. good, but you think, what the hell, it's only, it's only the last round, but certainly in the first 15 or 20 rounds of a of a full draft, I, I really am very reluctant to go to a, an F health guy. Yeah, that's, that's kind of, uh, it's kind of a similar place to where I'm coming to also, again, just trying to, especially early on where there are also, where there are so, uh, you know, so many good, uh, choices there, um, just kind of eliminating or seriously kind of downgrading some of those guys early on, I think just, uh, serves you well later. Have you seen any common threads in your draft so far, players you like, uh, any kind of surprises in the way that pitchers are going, anything like that? Um, I, I uh, yeah, I think there, and we'll talk about this more too, or we can chat about it now. I think the, the effect of the, all the rookies that came up and uh, some of which performed kind of above expectation in 2023, um, is kind of uh, you know spilling over a little bit into some 2024 draft stuff. Uh, I'm seeing that you know there are more even the highest kind of talented rookies are going um, earlier in drafts than what uh, what I've been used to, and um, it, it, it kind of creates an interesting quandary there uh, because I do if I'm if I'm going to go after those guys, I, I think I try to limit, especially early or middle uh, in a draft, I kind of want to limit it to the top tier um, kind of talent-wise uh, folks. And um, oftentimes they're, uh, they're being snatched up before I'm comfortable to do that. So I think that's, a, that's something that's definitely, you know, I, I've seen in the drafts that I've done so far. Uh, I think the other thing is, is how folks are handling uh, starting pitching. Uh, I think there's a lot more realization over the past couple of years about how, uh, how difficult, especially in like 15 team leagues and bigger uh, mixed leagues, basically, and of course, mono leagues, uh, same thing, how it's uh, tough to kind of successfully stream pitchers, uh, you know, continually uh, finding good options off the waiver wire. So, I think there is has been a shift to, for some, to uh, think about getting a little bit more start, starting pitching depth earlier on, so that you're not as uh, reliant on on uh, trying to find, uh, you know, this week's hot starter uh, each as during during the season uh, from week to week. I remember hearing uh, somebody talk about this in a podcast towards the end of last year. And uh, the gist of it was that somebody who was doing very well in NFPC challenging for the overall believed in getting a lot of starting pitchers in your reserve rounds in that NFPC format, rather than, uh, as you said, um, relying on the vagaries of the free agent market during the year, the, this person thought, well, you know, 
I'll look at those kind of pitchers that you really don't want as a general proposition because, you know, they struggle against this or they uh, struggle against that. But as home starts, they're, you know, not bad. And uh, I'll, instead of trying to get them with free agent bids, raising the risk that you might not get them, uh, period, but uh, just have them on your roster the the whole way. Yeah, uh, certainly that's... um that's something that I've done from time to time too. Is uh, is is uh, collect a lot of those sixth or seventh starters on on teams uh, in your reserve round that way, so that you have those um, available to you from week to week, as you said, rather than rather than trying to uh, jump into the wild west of uh, the free agent bidding uh, that can happen from week to week. Uh, what have you seen with closers? I think it's pretty similar to previous years as far as how folks are drafting closers. Um, but I do wonder about kind of the discourse around closers and uh, that while everyone kind of agrees that last year uh, that group as a whole was more stable, there wasn't as, uh, wasn't as much turnover. Uh, I think sometimes we risk thinking that that's kind of the new norm and uh, certainly history has not uh, shown us that. Um, I think it's, it's more possible that that's kind of an outlier. And I think that the, that the turnover just because the nature of, of relievers and how, uh, you know, who, who can be great one year uh, is not so great the next year and, and vice versa. I think it's just more likely that that, uh, that, that continues. Um, I know for me and other people certainly have said that I, I do uh, usually try to invest in one of the top tier uh, guys. And it's always a, always a question kind of, of how early you uh, make that leap opportunity cost and kind of what you're passing up there. Um, but that uh, certainly that safety um, relative safety, safe safety, um, uh, kind of in air quotes there, uh, I think more times than not, uh, can give you a base then to draft from, uh, where after, but, uh, you know, there's always the Edwin Diaz, uh, things from last year. And certainly I was, uh, a victim of that too, where you think you have one and Me too. a freak injury comes by and, uh, and all your, you know, all your well-laid plans kind of, uh, go by the wayside. Yeah. I, I still wonder about the reliability of even the top closers and it's not just the freak accidents like happened to Edwin Diaz last year, but I don't know. It just seems to me like I'm sure lots of people invested in uh, Felix Bautista last year and were rubbing their hands with glee and that didn't work out, you know, because they're pitchers and pitchers are inherently not reliable. And, I've kind of made it my uh, style or my strategy or my tactic to go a little deeper and take the last of the so-called reliable guys. Like in my, I've had one draft this year and I took Jordan Romano, I think in the seventh round, something like that. And he was kind of the last of those guys that you, at least, you know, he has the job that, and that was my, that was my threshold for considering a guy, but all the other guys went before him of that ilk. And I thought, eh, not a bad team, you know, and, uh, he certainly seems to have been capable of getting those, uh, getting the saves during the year, 
But do I know that? I sure don't. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Brent Hershey from BaseballHQ.com. And Brent, uh, BaseballHQ.com has rolled out a brand new website. Uh, what was the reason for making this really big, enormous change? Yeah. Well, have you had, were you on our previous website, uh, Patrick? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah I I, 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 in all seriousness, uh, yeah, the last time we updated uh, the the structure of the site was uh, in the spring of 2012. And of course, like everything in technology, um, you know, it, it eventually becomes obsolete. Um, that platform, you know, served us well uh, during that time, but there were certain aspects of that foundation that uh, were shaky enough that if, you know, if things kind of went sideways at some point, um, it might be tough to fix. There was some software that was, uh, you know, no longer supported that kind of, uh, stuff, the underlying, uh, underlying kind of bones of the site. Um, so that, you know, and related to that, probably just the biggest thing, uh, on the, you know, to see on the outside was the site wasn't, uh, very mobile friendly and, and Patrick, I think, you know, I think smartphones are probably here to stay. Uh, if you, you know, if you think, um, I I agree with you. I think that that ship has sailed. Although there is a, a kind of a rebound where I, I've noticed articles in the press and other places where people are making a conscious effort not to be so wedded to their smartphones, but we are still yeah. going to use them. And certainly the new site, I've tried it, is way better on the, on my phone than the old one was. Yeah, yeah and that's, uh, you know, again, trying to uh, think about uh, who's going to be using the site in the future and, and, uh, making it available to, uh, that crowd, uh, you know, uh, that, that, uh, I think we'll all head that way eventually, um, being it on a tablet or a phone kind of, you kind of just expect to, um, be able to access information in that way. Um, and so that was one of the, uh, yeah, one of the impetuses, impetus of, uh, of getting, uh, of, of redoing the site. How long was this project in the planning before you started to put the car on the road? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we had been, you know, at various points over the past five years or so kind of explored, um, and it ended up sort of being in fits and starts about, uh, getting, you know, what, what it would take to get to modernize, uh, the site. And, um, so, but for this specific uh, group, it was probably about a year ago um, when we got um, introduced or hooked up with uh, this de developers group, basically, um, that had some experience doing um, kind of site makeovers, uh, actually within kind of the sports and even even fantasy community, um, and that sort of uh, was especially interesting to us because of, uh, you know, to have folks be able to work with folks that have some familiarity with, you know, what is admittedly a very niche, uh, you know, kind of industry or, um, clientele that we have, uh, users, you know, how users use our, uh, site, uh, was important to us because there were some other conversations we've had over the years, um, with, uh, folks that weren't as familiar with, you know, even baseball HQ or fantasy baseball in general. And so there was like an extra sort of 
step to get through, we realized to um, be able to communicate just how uh, our users would want to use the site. Um, but back to your question. So at some point, yeah, at some point last spring, we started uh, talks with that. Uh, it was kind of late summer when we kind of uh, probably turned that corner of kind of dreaming about it into something that was like, yeah, I think this is going to happen. Um, and then uh, pretty much uh, throughout the fall and uh, and winter and still ongoing um, was when a lot of the you know actual work uh, was being done in uh, all the all the testing that goes into that all the here what do you think of this how this looks and no we want this uh, in in this spot or we want the users to be able to access the information this way uh, all of that um, a, a lot of the bulk of that kind of work um, happened uh, over the past uh, four or five months or so um, and uh, got, got us to where we are uh, now, which was able to debut the site here uh, right around the beginning of February. Anybody who's done this, and I've been a participant at some uh, places doing website redesigns or rebuilds, and it never goes exactly as you expect uh, expect it's going to go. What challenges did you face during the journey? Uh, one of the biggest challenges, and this you know is related to kind of finding the right fit with the developer group, was just how, uh, in general, how data heavy uh, our site is. You know, our tools are kind of complex and interrelated. Um, our charts, you know, we like we like displaying uh, charts and tables in our uh, articles, and just you know, finding ways for those types of things to um, be able to uh, to look good uh, and be uh, you know presented well on on a you know on on varying different devices um, was a uh, you know was certainly a challenge. I mean, you have folks that, uh, you know, that access the site uh, via big monitors on a desktop and they do uh, their work and interaction with our website that way. There are folks that, uh, you know, only have a tablet and that's what they use. And then there are, you know, like we said, others that uh, do a lot of uh, work on their phones. And of course, there's, you know, there's going to be uh, different expectations for that. And you, uh, you know, pluses and minuses uh, to all that. But the challenge was trying to, again, get our tools and, and or one of the biggest challenges was getting our tools and data kind of flexible enough uh, and usable enough that uh, to serve all of all of kind of those audiences. Um, another big challenge kind of was the calendar. Um, you know, we were very aware of you know, this February, March window is when we, you know, move the most, sell the most subscriptions and our site traffic, of course, is the highest, um, you know, folks are using it for their own drafts. Uh, and we have many longtime subscribers that use the site in a certain way. Um, so we had to kind of be mindful of when we were going to make this change, you know, balancing that with uh, where, uh, how far along, uh, how close we were to to uh, having a presentable product, um, knowing that there would be, you know, uh, some growing pains and kind of, you know, 
things that have moved around and kind of some re-education of uh, some of our uh, customers. So that's that was a challenge as well. Uh, you know, we had talked about is it better to do that sort of change in season rather than rather than the preseason. Um, but we eventually came down with, uh, with all the things we were weighing that uh, we could uh, aim for this February, beginning of February timeline, uh, give us uh, a few weeks before the real um, deluge of, of drafts and everything happened in March and um, kind, of, uh, kind of adapt and uh, continue to improve that as much as we could. What were some of the big key upgrades that users are going to find at the new HQ? Uh, mobile compatibility, obviously, is the one huge one. Um, and I think on a broader scale, too, we talked about a little bit, the having, having our data stored in a way that users can uh, easily find it. Um, so like the an upgraded kind of search capability is built into the new site. Um, it's a much more kind of robust uh, system there. And that, you know, that's real important for us that we have, uh, you know, we have, we brought over uh, a lot of old material, almost all of the, almost all of the articles uh, and things that we could uh, find from the past, from the past uh, 12 years or so when we did the previous up upgrade and some older uh, older items as well. Um, so being, you know, bringing that over and being able to, uh, for users to be able to uh, find that stuff uh, as easy as possible. And we felt we've, uh, we feel like the, that search function is, is working well. There's still some uh, tweaks that we have in mind for that to even make it, uh, more easier um, and then just in general the new <clears throat> site and the way the data is is uh, stored is just much more flexible for us in the future there's uh, other other ways that we think we're going to be able to um, present what we have um, both in article form and in the tools form that uh, that I think bodes bodes well for uh, as well for our future, where on the other site there were some restrictions we always had to kind of dance around uh, anytime we wanted to make improvements. Just uh, just using the new technology uh, to its fullest is uh, we're excited about. What do you still have on your punch list? Uh, still <clears throat> lots to improve on. I think probably the biggest thing uh is a feature called lig lig sync uh which is essentially replacing the mac tool um right. which is our team tracker system uh on the old site um that had uh you know that that tool definitely had kind of outgrown its ease of use <laughs> at, at the very least um but uh you know it was really important uh because it lets you kind of, you know, manually load your rosters and kind of track your team with, you know, using all of the uh, HQ metrics and features and that kind of thing. So this league sync um, is is similar, um, but is something that uh, actually goes out <clears throat> and pulls in um, 
your rosters from uh, several different uh, sites. Uh, NFBC will be one of them um, and kind of <clears throat> does a similar thing where you get to, um, you know, you have access to the HQ metrics uh, to track your teams. Um, <clears throat> there'll be a, you know, it'll sync the whole league actually. So uh, we'll be uh, available there to help you as you're, you know, searching the free agent pool. If you're uh, doing that, you can, can compare trades, uh, uh, compare player to player. Uh, you can compare uh, possible trade opportunities. So we're um, real excited about <clears throat> about that. Um, we did not, uh, we have not kind of debuted that yet uh, for the um, for the users, um, but that's coming within the next couple of weeks. And it's mainly an in-season tool uh, as well. Um, so the link sync is something we're uh, super excited about uh, sharing with subscribers uh, here very soon, and um, and other things that uh, you know are still to come are kind of these incremental upgrades. Like I said, with the search tool, uh, there's some uh, data data cleanup, uh, small little data cleanup things uh, that need to happen and will be happening uh, very soon, and. Um, yeah, we're uh, we're excited about these capabilities that we uh, will be able to share. So, when League Sync is fully set up and implemented, will the user be able to project a particular league, the standings? Um, yes, that's that's the goal. Yeah, um, with you know that there'll there'll be a feature there where again using because it'll be tied into our projections. Uh, that that'll be able to uh, kind of project those league standings and and hopefully help you identify uh, weaknesses in your in your teams and then you know kind of help hopefully help point you uh, in a direction to uh, to continually improve them. And if all goes perfectly, which it won't, but uh, when do you think the project <laughs> will really be completely done? <laughs> completely done, huh? Um, yeah, I, I kind of think of it as in terms of uh, in terms of a full calendar year um, that once we go through, you know, the whole cycle and we're sitting here uh, in, uh, you know, in February of 2025, um, we'll have a pretty good handle on uh, on how uh, on on hopefully, you know, how well it's performed uh, throughout the year at these different stages. Um, obviously we're starting off at a very kind of critical, important stage, uh, here at this point in the calendar, like I said, with the, you know, draft season coming up. Um, but as kind of for us, as, as some of that, uh, dies down a bit and we switch to in season mode, I think there'll be a lot of, um, you know, kind of, uh, interesting things we can do, uh, in season again to deliver the information to our subscribers and then uh in the fall when we uh you know the system will be uh somewhat is tied into how we set up uh, the baseball forecaster uh as well as the minor league baseball analyst um and so uh we'll get a better sense of too how how having uh all of our information on this different platform uh, hopefully makes uh, that process of uh, 
setting up the player boxes, uh, you know, for the forecaster, for instance, um, those charts and that kind of thing uh, will play a part in there. So, <clears throat> yes, it's uh, hardly ever uh, finished, but I think uh, once we get through a full, a full kind of cycle um, throughout the different things that we provide our subscribers, uh, we'll have a uh, pretty good handle on um, and hopefully get it to a uh, running smoothly um, state by then. And then you go into maintenance mode and uh, and tweaking and yep. stuff like that, as you mentioned before. Uh, you're listening yep. to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Brent Hershey from BaseballHQ.com. And Brent, in addition to being the co-general manager for editorial at the HQ site and helping to run the big site changeover, you're also part of the BHQ scouting team looking at prospects for fantasy purposes. Uh, how long have you been doing that? Uh, since... 2009, 2010 or so, uh, but really started focus, focusing on it more um, 2012, 2013. Um, was looking last night, that's kind of how far back my uh, game notes go uh, in my filing cabinet here. Um, it's around that time that I started, uh, that I started editing the minor league baseball analyst uh, book and, um, and, Coincidentally, around that time uh, is when I started kind of doing some more uh, staff, uh, you know, kind of as a staff person overseeing uh, some of the things, the very beginning of the transition from uh, Ron uh, to Ray and I for the day-to-day -day operations. Um, but that, you know, around that point is when uh, I started focusing on uh, the minor leagues and kind of uh, more of a scouting um, emphasis. And what's your current role on the scouting team? Uh, well, Chris Blessing is our director of prospect analysis. So I work with him and things like, uh, maintaining the prospect related articles on the baseball HQ calendar. Um, we of course started the eyes have it podcast together, uh, several years ago. Um, which is, uh, you know, a prospect-focused uh, fantasy baseball uh, podcast. Um, I still edit the minor league baseball analyst, though uh, Chris and Jeremy Deloney uh, always help us help out uh, their associate editors um, and help pull everything together. Uh, I also do attend a bunch of minor league games during the season. I'm at a live in a location where uh, I get to where it's not far to travel to uh, several different minor league parks at uh, at different levels across the minors. And so uh, try to coordinate some visits to those places when, uh, when there are top prospects, you know, at those affiliates or when those affiliates are playing uh, teams with uh, important uh, prospects to see. Um, and then I, and then for, uh, the minor league baseball analysts, as well as the organization reports, our top 15 uh, prospect lists during the offseason. Uh, I cover the Phillies and the Nationals uh, for that. So, so you know, getting getting to games uh, in my area here with those two uh, major league uh, affiliates is always a uh, priority for me. What is the timetable this year for the org reports and the uh, Baseball HQ Top 100? Yeah, the organization reports, <clears throat> they come out, which is, like I said, is our top 15. They come out 
in or start coming out in late November each year and run for about six weeks until mid-January or so. Um, <clears throat> and then right after those are finished is when we reveal that uh, HQ100 uh, top prospect list. Um, so this year, all of that uh, happened on uh, the old site, um, but that was part of all that information was part of what uh, was ported over uh, to the new site when we made when we made the jump in uh, a couple weeks ago in February, early February. So um, those are you know users can find those on the new site. We're um, also working <clears throat> currently at getting some of the past organization reports uh, from years previous uh, posted over too. Those will be up real soon. We had uh, lots of people ask for them, uh, and you know as they're doing their preparation, going back and looking to what we had to say and the grades and such that we gave uh, players uh, three or four years ago or even uh, longer uh, is important. So those are, uh, <clears throat> those are uh, we're bringing over uh, as kind of as we speak. In your draft so far this season, Brent, and just from what you've been reading or hearing in the fantasy baseball community and media, how are fantasy managers treating prospects in drafts this season so far? Yeah, I mentioned this a bit earlier, but uh, I find that folks are kind of selecting uh, prospects earlier. Um, I think it's just kind of recency bias, what we do. I mean, there was, uh, you know, both guys, uh, both players that, um, had some experience rookies that had some experience coming into uh, 2023 who did really well. Uh, Corbin Carroll, uh, Gunnar Henderson, that kind of thing. Um, those, you know, those uh, players did really well, but then there were some that uh, debuted in uh, the 2023 season that, uh, that fared well too. Uh, pitchers, especially Tanner Bybee, um, uh, Bobby Miller, uh, Bryce Miller, all those uh, types. So I think um, sometimes, uh, of course, I think psychologically it's easier for us to remember those guys uh, rather than uh, rather than the uh, rookies that came in and didn't do so well. Um, so I think that uh, is that is affecting um, you know drafters this year as far as oh I want to. You know, I want to be in on uh, this year's uh, whatever Gavin Williams and and uh, pick up this guy. And uh, you know, it's it's a time of the year, certainly Patrick. To you know, to, everyone's optimistic, right? Um, and uh, sometimes that uh, you know, sometimes that can get the that, that can get the best of us uh, in this situation. Well, as I mentioned, Brent, I was in a draft on the weekend and we took 13 prospects. I think that's pretty average for what I've been seeing so far in coverage of other drafts. So five of the yeah. prospects went in the main draft and eight more went in the reserves. How about I tell you the player and the round that our prospects went? You tell us what you think of the picks. Like, will he play? How good can he be? Is he a good get at that point? Those kinds of things. Yeah. Well, the okay. first, the first to go was Texas outfield prospect Wyatt Langford in the 13th round. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a little question of will he play to start the season. Um, 
given given the group there in Texas, uh, super high talented uh, college, uh, high profile college player, um, just shot through the minors, high upside uh, power speed combination, but no MLB experience. So I kind of think well, I like Langford a lot long term. I think kind of the 13th round on the uh, unproven player and one that you're not sure is going to make the opening day roster is a little steep uh, for my for my taste. I talked to the uh, fantasy owner who did the Wyatt Langford pick, and he just was very sure that Wyatt Langford's going to be on the opening day roster as the DH, which yeah. I guess is possible, but uh, as you said, certainly no sure thing. I thought a much surer thing was shortstop prospect Jackson Holiday of Baltimore. I heard he's going to be working out at second in spring training. He went in the 14th round, and I like that pick more than I liked Langford. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree. Um you know, there's obviously still a lot of uh, risk, but I feel like Baltimore, you know, that team has kind of more, more of a opening for them. I mean, they got, they do have tons of infielders, but I, um, I, I've heard too, and can certainly understand that, uh, you know, the holidays can be moved around some, um, and and uh, that flexibility uh, by position there, I think, will bode well for him. Uh, there's still the question kind of is, you know, will he be on kind of the opening day roster? Um, but because of, because of how Baltimore is structured there, uh, I think there might be a better chance. And, and I like the fact that even though he doesn't have major league experience, uh, he does have, uh, you know, minor league experience, more minor league experience than, than, uh, Lankford. So I would, I would agree with you that, uh, kind of where, He's going there uh, while there's still risk. Uh, I would I would rather have uh, Holiday there than Langford earlier. And I just think if the guy you're trying to replace is uh, Jorge Mateo, yeah, you got to like your chances. <laughs> uh, starting pitcher yep. Paul Skeens of Pittsburgh went in the 21st. Yeah, uh, certainly like him a lot. Uh, storied, you know, college career. Um, Given this the 21st round, uh, I feel uh, feel decent about that. The you know the, the overlying thing too is that so many of the when we look back at uh, hitter versus pitcher kind of debuts, um, hitters rookie debuts, uh, hitters are you know have always graded out better. I mean, kind of the bust rate is is higher for pitchers. Um, that said. I mean, Skeens is a no doubt kind of top 15 overall uh, prospect, has amazing stuff, um, should be up at some point at midseason, I think kind of in the 21st round. Um, that's a decent that's a decent shot to take uh, there with Skeens. And I'll confess it was me who took him in the 21st round, oh. and, and my thinking <laughs> was I knew he was going to get picked and I thought I'll grab him now and I'll grab somebody in reserve to replace him, assuming he doesn't yeah. make the team. And then sooner or later he'll be on, he'll be in the big leagues. I, I hope, uh, outfielder yeah. Pete Crow Armstrong of the Cubs went in the 22nd. Yeah. I like, I like this pick as far as where he's going. Um, uh, I think that the rough kind of cameo in 2023 has people kind of off uh, Crow Armstrong a bit. Um, you know, I think 
the thing that uh, I think is a positive for him is that his defense is so outstanding and uh, you know, it's a, it's an important position center field. Um, and I think as, you know, the longer they go, the Cubs without kind of re-signing Bellinger um, or finding another center fielder, I think it's, you know, it kind of increases the chances of uh, Carl Armstrong starting with the club. I do think he'll uh, eventually hit uh, more than what uh, he showed um, in the, and that, again, that brief appearance uh, in 2023, but um, the, the defense will keep him on the field and the stolen bases from a fantasy perspective uh, should be there, even if he's, you know, kind of for now hitting uh, near the bottom of the order. So uh, I think at the 22nd round, uh, Earl Armstrong is a uh, is a pretty solid pick for a uh, for a rookie. And again, I think uh, if you've kind of projected him into center field, I think the current guy on the on that uh, spot in the roster for the Cubs is uh, Mike Talkman, which again is not yeah. the, not the toughest guy in the world to beat out for a role. You wouldn't think. And the yeah. guy I liked the best actually, and I was kind of sniped on this one, was infielder Jordan Westberg of Baltimore went mm-hmm. in the 23rd round. And I would not be at all surprised to see Jordan Westberg in the starting lineup come opening day. Yeah, uh, I agree. In the 23rd, it's a good, it's a good spot for Westberg. Um, you know, the thing that stands out to me as opposed to the other four we've talked about so far is he's got a, you know, he's got more time kind MLB time under his belt and, uh, you know, played, played okay, uh, there. Uh, Westberg's a guy that I saw a, a good bit, uh, coming up through the minors and, uh, was really impressed with as far as, uh, kind of, uh, baseball IQ kind of, uh, guy, uh, grinder type, uh, does a lot of things, uh, well, um, I think Baltimore, again, I think they're, they're kind of building in sort of flexibility. I know in many leagues, uh, Westbrook already has second and third base eligibility. Uh, he came up as a shortstop. Um, so I think that, um, yeah, Westbrook is, will be a guy that kind of moves around a lot, uh, gets probably, uh, four or five starts during the week, perhaps more depending on injuries and, and, uh, what they do with holiday. Um, but there's some, uh, you know, there's some decent, uh, power speed kind of floor there. And I think he's a solid, solid guy, uh, to fill in and kind of at, in a, in a 23rd round is a, uh, is a pretty solid pick. And we'll wrap up by uh, looking uh, quickly at some of the guys that went in the reserve rounds. And again, I think these are pretty representative of what I've been seeing for these players in other drafts as well. Toronto right-hander Ricky Tiedemann went in uh, the 24th round, so the first round of reserves. Yeah, uh, I think there's injury and workload concerns there. Um, and the fact that uh, like his ceiling isn't quite as high right now as schemes uh, because of that uh, I would probably pass on a reserve pick on Tiedemann again because I don't expect him to start the season with the Jays. Kyle Manzardo, the Cleveland first baseman uh, in the second reserve row, 25th row. Yeah, I mean, I kind of wonder how much power power will be there. Um, and with kind of Naylor there at first base, I mean, maybe they maybe – they, start Manzardo at DH, but I think there's still questions about whether he starts with Cleveland. Um, 
right now, probably in the 25th, it would not be a favorite of mine. Did pretty well in the uh, home run derby in the Arizona Fall League. He did, yes. And uh, his fall league was uh, his fall league was good. I just have uh, I just have some swing questions there, and uh, wonder if it's uh, you know if if the power at the major leagues is going to be a little shy of what you would want, especially uh, kind of at this point in his career uh, being unproven. Milwaukee third base prospect Tyler Black in the twenty sixth round, the third reserve round. Yeah, I like this one a lot. Um, I think the again team, team context is so important when trying to uh, trying to select these guys. Um, Milwaukee, you know, is kind of going young and cheap. Um, Black is a patient bat. Um, gives you uh, in his minor league numbers anyway. You know, gives, is going to give you stolen bases uh, that you don't get often get out of third base. And kind of from the end of last. Uh, season already the GM was kind of talking about they'd be comfortable with Black uh, as their third baseman Um, you know still has his debut um, but kind of with that speed and kind of the different uh, has the value uh, Black someone I like kind of uh, in this as a reserve pick at first when I looked at it I didn't think I saw a path to playing time but then, uh, especially after they traded for Joey Ortiz, but uh, I started uh, looking and I've been hearing a lot of uh, rumors that the Brewers might be looking at trading Willie Adamas and that could create all kinds of shuffling mm-hmm. going on in that infield and which would create a path to playing time for Tyler Black. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think you're right that uh, Ortiz coming in, you know, gives them another uh, infielder. Um, but yes, I think... Milwaukee, a lot of those veterans, uh, I sort of approach with this year thinking about, uh, you know, questioning whether they're going to be there, uh, all season and, um, and these, you know, and, and kind of thinking about that in terms of what young players are going to fill those positions. And of course, Milwaukee also traded their, uh, ace starting pitcher, Corbin Burns in the offseason, which might create a spot for the, our next pick. Left-handed starter Robert Gasser went in our draft in the 27th round, which is the fourth reserve round. Yeah, I mean, Gasser, I think, is someone to keep an eye on for sure. Again, uh, just like we said, uh, with the Milwaukee giving likely giving these younger players a shot, it's probably a mid-season call-up. Um, there's some things to like uh, there with Gasser uh, being a lefty. Um, it'll just depend uh, it, that seems, this seems like the type of pick will, you know, while he's on reserve now, uh, it'll kind of depend, uh, how many injuries, uh, and if, if you have a, you know, if you have a unlimited IL, that kind of thing, I mean, is Gatser someone that in a no IL league, you know, where you, uh, is, is it someone worth trying to keep him on reserve as a stash, uh, for a long time? Um, it may be kind of team dependent whether that, uh, whether that is worth it or not. In the next round, uh, San Diego outfielder, Jacob Marcy went, and, uh, I have to admit this one caught me a little off guard. Yeah. Uh, this is not someone that I would think about, uh, probably rostering in a reserve round at this point. Um, you know, there's some interesting stuff there. Uh, we saw him out in the, uh, Arizona fall league. Um, Certainly 
San Diego is a similar vein as Milwaukee. It seems kind of in transition. So it's going to mean some younger players are going to work their way in, but it doesn't, uh, Marcy doesn't seem like someone that is going to make this team uh, out of, uh, out of camp. Um, some speed, but like a, not a super high upside guy uh, feels more like a uh, kind of in season fab pickup. Uh, once he actually, once you're actually for sure he's on the roster. I wouldn't say the same thing about our next pick. Uh, Dylan Cruz was taken in the 29th round and he sure seems to have an easier path to the big leagues, if nothing else. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and again, this is where, like, I, I like this pick in the 29th round for Cruz because more than, uh, Manzardo and maybe even more than like black or, and, and certainly more than Marcy, uh, Cruz has such a high, uh, pedigree. Uh, high upside kind of talent. You know, he's uh, pretty much uh, top 10, top 15 prospect in the game across the board. Uh, got the double A last year. Um, I think this could be, you know, his skills say that uh, he has a, I think has a better chance than some of those other guys to kind of hit the ground running when he, um, when he's promoted uh, to the majors. Uh, like I said, just got the double A, was just drafted uh, last year, of course, uh, got to double A, um, had some, uh, had a little bit of, uh, resistance there. So it was unlikely to make the opening day roster, but would not be a surprise if he was soon in triple A. And, uh, if he does well, uh, could, could find his way to the majors by mid season. And as you said, there are, uh, with Tim and Washington, there'll be no kind of roadblocks for him. Uh, once they feel he's ready to be up. Outfielders for the Nationals going into camp: uh, Lane Thomas, yeah, Jesse <laughs> Winker, then... Vic, Victor Robles, <laughs> and Joey Gallo. I mean, if th- four Gallo's guys for there. the DH yeah. spot and stuff. Uh, not not exactly uh, the uh, uh, seventy five Reds outfield. No, for sure. Uh, and the other the other uh, Washington player you don't have him on your list here. Uh, outfielder is James Wood, uh, who's also uh, I think is a high talent. Uh, kind of uh, guy, big power, speed, tall, tall guy, um, could also kind of be on a similar path as Cruz um, as a possible midseason call-up and has a lot of tools uh, that I think will find fantasy-friendly. In the, in the last round, uh, I was, I thought, really fortunate. I got Nolan Sh- uh, Shanuel of the Angels, and I think he's going to start yeah. the season on the roster playing. Yeah, it, uh, their depth chart kind of uh, indicates that. He was, uh, so of course, up at the end of last year. I think certainly as a reserve pick, uh, it's, a, it's a good spot because oftentimes you uh, are, you know, if you're taking a shot on a rookie like that, uh, you're hoping for a midseason call-up where Shanuel should be uh, the first baseman from the start. Uh, I do think he's probably better suited as a kind of a corner or a fill-in uh, at this point because uh, he's a high-contact, uh, not a lot of power uh, guy, especially for that position. But again, those, uh, you know, in like a 15-team league, which I think this was uh, for you, I think that uh, it's, he's a good bench uh, guy to have um, and should certainly uh be in line for lots of at-bats uh, as long as he stays healthy through the season. 
another last rounder, uh, Yankees outfielder, Jason Dominguez. Yeah. I mean, the super, um, super toolsy, high upside guy. We saw that in the, you know, the brief time before he got hurt last year. Um, it, you know, the injury outlook does dampen, uh, 2024 considerably, uh, which is, you know, kind of why, uh, you're getting him in the 30th round here, uh, in the reserves. Um, I think he, he, again, could be worth holding all year. Um, the, uh, the, uh, until he, uh, you know, is recovered mid season or so. Um, but I think there's also a chance that he had back heads back to the minors against, again, sort of depending on, uh, what the Yankees outfield situation, uh, looks like, uh, by the time he's ready. Um, so, uh, I, th- I think for now, I think it's a good, it's a good, uh, reserve pick. But again, one of those that depending on circumstances and your own um, other IL needs, um, you may, you know, will we'll, we'll kind of determine uh, if you're able to carry him uh, until he's uh, ready. And I don't know if I like his chances of busting into the uh, Yankees outfielder uh, ahead of Juan Soto or Aaron Judge. So it's basically down to right. one spot open yeah. kind of situation. And the very last player in the, uh, in the list here, St. Louis outfielder, Victor Scott. Yeah, I actually, I don't mind this pick at all kind of in the 30th round there. Um, again, it'll be a guy that most likely, uh, won't be, uh, on the roster to start the season. Um, but he has tons of speed and is uh, a little bit like Pete Crow Armstrong in that his defense is really good uh, in center field. Um, and I think once the Cardinals kind of deem him ready, uh, there'll be someone that they uh, rely on him playing. But he certainly, uh, so far in the minors, has been the, you know, kind of a, a leadoff, uh, prototypical leadoff guy with a little bit of pop um, and should uh, steal a lot. Again, it'll depend on the Cardinals outfield right now. It doesn't seem like there's a spot for him. Um, but uh, it, but given how he progressed last year, we saw, again, another guy we saw out in the fall league last uh, fall uh, that looked positive. Uh, I think there's, uh, you know, there could be some good long-term uh, value there and kind of, uh, you know, a speed sort of influx into your roster um, if he's, uh, if he's promoted sometime during the year. Brent, this has been really informational and entertaining. Uh, remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work. Yeah. Uh, I'm on the Twitter X machine at, uh, Brent HQ. Uh, don't do a whole lot of posting, uh, over there, but, uh, of course, um, you can find me at, uh, baseball HQ, uh, com. Uh, working, um, you know, kind of, as I said, doing the day-to-day stuff with Ray Murphy, uh, writing occasional articles, uh, um, yeah, throughout the year under our GM's office, uh, helping to, uh, organize all the great content there. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, excited, excited for the time of year, excited for our new site and, uh, excited to, uh, get opening day going here in another uh, six weeks or so. And uh, will you be returning to the Eyes Have It pod? Uh, yes. 
probably cutting back a little bit, probably once a month um, or so. Uh, Chris is kind of, Chris Blessing's sort of taking the lead on that and um, bringing in uh, different guests uh, for that. And again, the focus of that is trying to uh, especially uh, hone in on uh, those that are able to kind of uh, see some of these prospects in person and give some in-person kind of uh, reports on them uh, in that way. So uh, yes, we'll be part of the Eyes Have It uh, podcast crew as well. All right, Brent, thanks very much for helping us out. Thanks. Appreciate the invite, uh, PD, and uh, have a great podcast season. Brent Hershey is a co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com and a member of the HQ Scout team. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentary, The Frequent Flyer, is on the way. But first, one last reminder of the resources available to you when you subscribe to the new BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. The Baseball HQ scouting team has comprehensive coverage of the prospects who can make or break a fantasy season. As you heard from Brent Hershey, all the BHQ team org reports are on the site now, and so is the HQ100 list of the top fantasy prospects, headed by a pair of Jacksons. There's four Jacksons in all on the list. That's comprehensive prospect coverage, and it's another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Now, I've mentioned a few of the resources on the site now, and they're just the tip of the iceberg of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes. There's news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, some long shot suggestions in the speculator column, player injury analysis in the Big Hurt and team injury reports, gaming strategy analysis for Roto, Points Leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, we have tools like the player projections updated every day, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential sergers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So when you add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our first Baseball HQ commentary of the 2024 season. It's the Frequent Flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. Here with a look at Houston third baseman Zach DiZenzo is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He stormed through high A to reach double A in 2023, according to Baseball HQ's 2024 minor league baseball analyst, and he may keep rising on draft day. Batting 304 with 18 home runs and 22 stolen bases in 2023, 23-year-old Houston Astros third baseman, Zach DeCenzo is a name to familiarize yourself with as a potential heir apparent to Alex Bregman at the hot corner, according to the Houston Chronicles' Michael Shapiro on January 8th. 
Postulating that Bregman's future with the Houston Astros past 2024 appears increasingly in doubt as we approach the start of spring trading, further noting that Bregman is entering the final season of his five-year $100 million contract extension signed before the 2019 season, Shapiro expressed skepticism that Astros owner Jim Crane would likely extend Bregman again in 2025. USA Today's Bob Nightingale also noted on February 11th that the Houston Astros plan to make Bregman a contract offer before he hits free agency, but it's not expected to come close to the $300 million over 10 years it likely will take to keep him. Bregman's agent, Scott Morris, as quoted by MLB.com's Brian McTaggart on February 14th, said that Bregman turns 30 next month he will be looking to maximize his worth. Enter Zach DeCenzo, stage left. That's why 23-year-old Houston Astros shooting star Zach DeCenzo, like all our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a late-round flyer if he is still available in your league. After all, DeCenzo's profile is headlined by huge draw power and impact speed, according to Baseball HQ's 2024 minor league baseball analyst, and DeCenzo's 2023 slash line of 304, 383, and 531 with a 914 OPS and 22 steals seems to confirm this assertion. To put that in perspective, only one Major League third baseman in 2023, Jose Ramirez, profiled above 2020, featuring a slash line of 282, 356, and 475, leading to an 831 OPS. Are we really comparing Zach DeCenzo to Jose Ramirez? <laughs> no. Absolutely not. Please don't draft DeCenzo buff Ramirez this season. However, even Houston Astros radio broadcaster Robert Ford, as a guest on MLB Network's Power Alley on February 13th, quipped, If I were a betting man, I would bet that Bregman's probably playing somewhere else next year. Maybe that means the 23-year-old Houston Astros rising star Zach DeCenzo could be manning Minute Maid's hot corner by the trade deadline. It should be garnering, for all you Phil Garner fans out there, draft consideration as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Alex stayed up late to bring us this edition of the Flyer, and he threw a PQS5 for us. He'll be back on regular rest for his next start next week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 16th. Thanks very much for taking the time, and there was plenty of it, to download and listen to show number one of the 2024 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest experts for this Friday full edition, Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball and a fantasy baseball writer at The Athletic, and Brent Hershey, the co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com. Gene is a fixture here at Baseball HQ Radio as our leadoff hitter every year, and he always comes through in the clutch with extra bases. And Brent is a great guest as well as a real leader of the content team at BaseballHQ.com. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, and now even better, our Market Watch news analyst was Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the forums at BaseballHQ.com. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. 
and not much else since I don't participate in X very much anymore. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and it's new listeners that help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday with a Two Tout Tuesday edition featuring Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and Brant Chesser, the Arsenal Report and Facts and Flukes Analyst at BaseballHQ.com. And in the weeks ahead, we'll have more top-notch guest experts, including Ariel Cohen from Rotographs and the ATC Projection Valuation Systems, Ron Chandler, we've all heard of him, the founder of Baseball HQ, and the Babs Fantasy Baseball System. We'll have Jeff Zimmerman from Rotographs, the Launch Angle Podcast, and the Process Fantasy Baseball Manual. And we'll have all the usual great stuff, our news analysis, and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Todd Zola and Brant Chesser on our Two Tout Tuesday edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk with you again on Tuesday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. Hey, welcome to CODA, a segment I tag on to the end of the show every so often to highlight something that we talked about in the show itself, but really not the kind of thing that suits the main program at Baseball HQ Radio. So earlier, Jean McCaffrey and I were talking about Syl, a young woman who's making a name for herself as a singer. She actually lived near Jean in Fort Collins, Colorado, and wowed him at an early age with her self-taught piano playing, but even more with her voice, especially the intensity of feeling she managed to convey through her singing way ahead of her age. She moved to Los Angeles when she was 18 to pursue a music career and built a following with online videos. That bid paid off when Syl signed with Warner Records and in June released a six-song EP called Tears Dry On Their Own. The EP includes some very excellent singles, One More Shot Girl I Used To Be and Devil In Your Eyes, which have earned her 30 million total streams and three-quarters of a million followers on TikTok alone. She's also had two strings of dates opening for former Fleetwood Mac legend Stevie Nicks. So enough of this palaver. Let's get the show on the road. This is Gene McCaffrey's musical pick to click in a big way. It's Syl with her latest single, Bloodsucker, on Coda. I like the way that you make promises that you can't keep. How you tell a girl to rock your wood and shine into the sheets. 